The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Who, oddly enough, doesn't have a uh, opening bumper for this episode either. Hmm. Dude, this is becoming a trend. I think you got to work on your opening bumpers. Or just have something randomly prepared. I think so. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's, your, that's your homework, dude. For next episode, I want a weird random opening bumper that's totally prepared. Uh-oh. <laughs> anyway, so tonight... We're going to be talking about the weird gamification formula that's infecting all media. Does that sound sinister? Good, because it is. And Don's going to tell us all about it right now. Okay, Uh Don, over to you. That's funny that you take that position because people, anybody who's listened to the show knows like we've talked about writing formulas before. Just a few times. (laughs) <laughs> and anybody who's listened knows that Rob's kind of more a big fan of them and I fear them because I think there's, well, there's good and bad, but I think mm-hmm. for formulas proper, there's a fair amount of bad. Maybe. But, <laughs> but we, we ran into a thing. And if you remember the episode we did about writing formulas, mm-hmm. there was one, I believe it was a Michael Moorcock where he had a formula that wasn't quite a formula where he said, uh, if he's mm-hmm. going to write, if he's writing like a certain sorcery story, he'd take like a day and just come up with like random terms and images and ideas and just write them all down. Mm-hmm. And that puts you in your frame of mind. And then he basically would do a quick breakdown of the story. And then you're just off and running with writing. Right. Yeah. Well, there was one catch though. I should bring mm-hmm. this up. Um, Michael Moorcock was actually breaking it down using the Lester Dent formula. So he Mm. did actually have a formula he was using, but he was doing an extrapolated version of the Lester Dent formula, which you can find a link to in the show notes. But the short version is basically, it's just a very simple four-act structure where act one, you introduce lots of problems. Act two, you introduce more problems. Act three, you introduce (laughs) bigger problems. And act four, you introduce even bigger problems. And then you just kind of solve it all together. Hmm. That's basically the Lester Dunn formula. And it worked for like 183 pulp novels or something like that. Written by Lester Dent. And Michael Moorcock, apparently. And many more written by other people, too. Oh, yes. It's very popular. Mm-hmm. But that uh, that idea, the way Michael Moorcock did it, it's it's that weird kind of nether space. It's it, it works like a writing formula, but it's something else, too. Okay, so mm-hmm. generally speaking, I think there's three ways to look at plot. Uh, Plot is content, plot is structure, and plot is formula. Content means you're looking at plot as what, just the stuff that's in it, you know, the content, but not actually how to put it together, how to organize it. Formula means you have a specific formula that usually tells you what goes where and what's supposed to be there. And then there's plot is structure, where it's basically, here's the structure, the framework that you can use, but it doesn't tell you really the content. You can just decide what you want to go in there. 
And those are three different ways that I can see of looking at plot. So what you're talking about there is plot is formula, I guess, because that's really what Michael Moorcock is basically doing. He's, right. it's, it's, he's, he, you know, he, like you said, he's piggybacking on the whole Lester Dent thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, it, and it's, it's in a, in a weird kind of plug and play sort of way mm-hmm. that he's, he's inserting uh, certain ideas or concepts into that basic structure and then kind of filing off the rough spots and ta-da, story. Exactly. Well, guess what? That's what the majority of genre fiction is. That's how it's written. Mm-hmm. Because that's getting at a weird thing that I noticed a little mm-hmm. while ago I had inklings of. But it kind of – two things kind of came together and 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 put this idea that there's this sort of in-between not quite writer's formula, not quite writing technique that a mm-hmm. lot of different writers nowadays have glommed onto. There are – usually a few different approaches often they're very intuitive like they've kind Mm -hmm. of figured out on an intuitive level that other writers are doing it and they copy it but they don't know exactly what the other writers are doing or they just kind of have a vague idea that's probably one of the things you've cottoned on to um and that they've glommed on to as the case may be all right so it's interesting that you're specific about that (laughs) well i have to be it's it's important to be specific when we're talking about formula (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. (laughs) So, all right. So let's stop being vague and beating around the bush here and let's just take a look at it. So what do you got in the box? Okay. Because you've hit upon, I think, why this has proliferated. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking about when we had uh, Justin on talking about when he was in at home in Trinidad. Mm -hmm. He talked about how he was inspired by video games. Right. And how that the like the way that the the role playing games especially were structured and the way the plots came out made a big impact on on him when he was younger. Mm, makes sense. And I thought about that because I was going through. Um, anybody again who's listened to the show knows I have a bit of a problem with old school role playing games. And I'd recently come into a uh, into a collection of old White Dwarf magazines, mm-hmm. like super old, and I have an obsession with the uh, old White Box D and D. And the earliest white dwarves had a lot of how to set up your campaign, a lot of analyses of the rules. Because anybody who's tried to play white box D and D knows it's kind of half a set of rules, right? There's a lot of like intuitiveness that went on back in the day, Mm -hmm. and this is people filling it in. And a big focus for old school D and D was uh, balancing the the challenge of the encounter versus the group. And there's tons of different systems that came out. And even today with the newer versions, it's always how do I make the monsters challenging enough to be a fight, but not like a guaranteed stomp on the group. Mm -hmm. And when you put those two ideas together, you get, and and this is what we've referred to as kind of the gamification of story. You get this weird kind of formula that ever, that since, um, I'd say back, go back to like, say the late seventies, Starts coming out in a lot of a lot of entertainment, especially action-based stuff. Mm-hmm. Where what happens is the plot is structured like a game. Okay, how so? Well, what you get in um, your old school D anD D, you get it kind of backwards, where the idea is because the game is perpetual and it's from the player's point of view. 
as their characters advance and go up in level and get new abilities, you're always trying to match monsters and the threat to their current level. Mm-hmm. You get that in like the uh, not old school, middle school video mm-hmm. games, like in the 80s when the uh, role playing games start taking off. Mm-hmm. Because you've got the technology to do more than it's red cube, it's blue cube, right? Um, you get the this idea that the story, the nature of the story, changes as your character advances. Because again, you go up, you get new new abilities. The monsters get tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the old monsters kind of just vanish. Like that was another statuism. How come when I turn fifth level, all the orcs disappear? <laughs> well. Because you've killed them all. That's how you get <laughs> exactly. But it's, all it's dead. Thanks, yeah. statue. <laughs> it's it's that idea that what's happening is you're doing kind of a materialist version of the hero's journey, where the character is advancing in power and ability, mm-hmm. and the plot and universe following along is developing in relation to the power level of your character or the Mm -hmm. character, the main character. Right. Okay. That's an interesting idea. And I, yeah, I can pretty clearly see what you mean. Yeah. Okay. That the universe is always roughly at the same difficulty level as your character can handle. Maybe just a tiny bit harder than they can handle. Yeah. And what ends up happening too, is because of the nature of games, be them, uh, tabletop games or the video game role-playing games, they were generally written from encounter to encounter to encounter. Mm-hmm. So like in a video game, you would play the battle of such and such a field, and that would get you to the town. And in the town, you'd buy the equipment that would get you through the mountain pass that would get you to the kingdom of like evil King Floyd. And then you'd beat King Floyd. And then it would be another, but it's all based on, on these challenges you're going it, it's not a plot it's mm-hmm. you beat this guy up then you go to the guy who's tougher and then the guy who's tougher after that right, yeah like that's the very gamer formula and what i was thinking on that i noticed is when you get to like the late 70s mm-hmm. especially with like your action films your cop tv shows and that they start doing that mm, that's true um, and it, I think I might have a reason for it, but continue. I'll talk tell you about that okay. in a second. Okay, but it's that idea that what you start seeing is the hero begins like hunting down the the bad guys. He becomes like a, a vigilante yep, yep. inevitably. He shakes down like the the local hustler to find out where the gang meets. He beats up the gang and beats up their leader, who then tells him where like the guy that supplies them with with their drugs that they're selling the kids in the schools is and he goes and beats that guy up and then that guy's a little tougher and that guy tells him where the big boss is and he shows up and then he gets into a fight with the big boss and it's always a fight it's never that like Mm. the weird old middle-aged guy who's in charge of the crime organization is a thinker at this point he's always like a combat monster and you have to fight him or barring that he has an unstoppable muscle-bound Freddie Mercury clone that you have to kick the ass yep, off. Yep, that's it. That's the formula, all right? <laughs> just, yep, and that's a clever commando reference for anybody playing it all. <laughs> yep. And and you get that kind of thing as it, it becomes codified as a formula because if you go back to older action stories and older detective stories and that, mm-hmm. they didn't, they weren't quite that packed. 
Usually the older stuff is a sequence of the hero getting the shit kicked out of him from encounter Mm -hmm. to encounter, but he manages to kind of lumber his way through and then finally at the end kind of gets his bearings and comes around and wins, basically. But it's usually him losing a whole lot until he finally wins. Again, Lester Dent formula. Yeah, and, and, and it's also the idea that the opposition isn't as stratified mm. most of the time. Like, you'll meet the main villain early in the story, and then it's the hero being one step behind the main villain. Mm, that's true. It's not that you're going from, like, scene to scene. Working your fighting way up. Progressive. Yeah, fighting progressively more competent bad guys. Yep. And do you want to know where this actually comes from? You think it's from game of gamification. You might be right, but I actually have a different take mm-hmm. on it. Okay. It's from old Kung Fu movies. Yeah, I was thinking the that. The 70s <laughs> is basically the era of the Kung Fu movie. And if you watch Kung Fu movies from the 60s and 70s, as I have watched many, um, you will see <laughs> this is exactly how they all function. And in fact, mm-hmm. one could make a very good argument that what's really going on in... Um, uh, video games, actually, because a lot of them are from Japan and that, right, is actually what they've gotten also from the Kung Fu formula because it's so perfect and it works so well. Mm-hmm. There's always a main bad guy who's a badass, but first, before then, you have to work your way through his minions before you can finally get to him. And that's what... Right. And the mo- movie will basically be um, the hero getting beat up at the beginning, and then he trains a bunch, and he comes back and begins working his way through the minions until he finally faces the bad guy at the end. He defeats the bad guy, roll credits, movie's over. Literally, that's how they... There's mm-hmm. not even a denouement or anything like that. It's literally the end will suddenly come up if you watch an old Shaw Brothers <laughs> film. Right. And it's like, okay, as you're literally watching the bad guy like fall onto the ground, it would just go the end, and you'll see the hero turn around and just walk away from the camera. Because mm-hmm. they know the moment that that fight is over, the story is over. The story yeah. is really just about them waiting their way through each level of bad guys until they reach the tough guy at the end and they and they win. Now, I know this was going on in the 70s, I believe some of the 60s. Now, some of the earlier movies are a little bit different. I'm not quite sure because I'm not quite the... I'm going to make a bad reference here, but I'm not quite the Kung Fu movie master that uh, could tell you the uh, these exactly what point this started at with what film. I know there are guys mm-hmm. out there like that, and hopefully we'll get to interview one in the near future. But um, <laughs> I think the Kung Fu movies are where this comes from. I think you're right. Um, there's there's a, a Western equivalent as well. Right. Because a lot of the old like uh, horse operas mm. follow that kind of formula. Yeah, they do. But there's one odd little, I guess, little twist that they still tended to do. Mm-hmm. But before, say, the late 70s was that you would be introduced to all of the obstacles right away. Right. That it would be like uh, for the Kung Fu movie, you'd see like the, the, the evil the evil warlord and you would meet his like, you know, seven savage monkeys. That would be his, his troop of Kung Fu actors. And then the hero would meet them one by one. Right, yeah. But you'd get that up front. It's the same thing like the old uh like the old westerns, you know. Marshall, mm-hmm. the Shaw brothers have come up to the hill and they're kung fu experts for some reason cuz <laughs> you mentioned Shaw brothers and it stuck with me. Sorry. But it would be yeah, but it would be something like that and usually mm-hmm. it they they would be pretty linear like the 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 newer version. But there'd be some kind of extra bit of kind of circular action to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I was just watching um, a show called The Rebel Johnny Yuma uh, uh-huh. recently. I don't know if you ever, you've probably heard of, you've probably heard of Johnny Yuma. Because um, mm. it was this show that was done with, I believe it was Nick Adams, I think, starred in it before he went off and hung out with Giant Monsters. Um, mm. And this was, it's from like the 60s. It's from like you know, the late 50s or early 60s. Anyway, um, Shout Factory has it on their website. If you can watch Shout Factory TV or through your Roku or whatever, like the, one of those streaming services, um, mm. they can uh, – anyway, they have it on there. And so I was I was watching like the first episode of that and I found it interesting because what they're basically doing was the Kung Fu formula. He comes into town. The town is being ravaged by this bad guy and his gang of thugs. Um, mm-hmm. And he immediately encounters the thugs and, you know, develops bad blood with them. And then he finds out that, that you know, these people are like, you know, terrorizing this town where he grew up. Uh, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this, but I don't think that really matters. <laughs> um, it's, it's like 60 year old spoilers, folks deal with it. Um, <laughs> but then what basically the short version is. The regular formula happens, though. Once he finds out what's really going on, he begins working his way through the bad guys until eventually he has a duel with the main bad guy and he wins and then he rides off into the sunset mm-hmm. because that's a Western, basically. Mm-hmm. So I think that formula is there even on the American side right from the beginning. Um, but I think that the Asians, you know, especially the Chinese Kung Fu movies, they really stratified the hell out of that formula. Like they yeah. were really into the working your way up, whereas the Western version usually does involve like, OK, there's the whole gang and he might be working his way through the gang. But really, there's just like standard gang member and the boss. And there's only those two levels, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the and he'll have to go through the gang members to get to the boss. But again, there's only the two levels. Whereas the Asian stuff, they'll be like low-level dickweeds, medium-level dickweeds, to use your parlance. Then they'll be like <laughs> a lieutenants, and then they'll be the main boss. Right. And so there's all these different levels, and the main character has to work their way through those levels to get somewhere. Well, to get to the end. Yeah. I, I think part of that too, though, is because, uh, and we've talked about this before, that um, the Asian mindset opposed to the Western one Mm-hmm. believes in hard work and likes to see that the hero has to work and improve and develop. Right. And when you talk about martial arts, most martial arts have a rating system that you do have a, a rank. They do. And do you know where that comes from? Hmm. Go. Referring to the game, oh, okay. Go. Because um, I noticed that when I first started playing Go many years ago is that also as Wei Chi in Chinese or Baduk in Korean. But uh, mm-hmm. Go is the game with uh, black and white stones where you take turns putting them down on a board and try to surround each other. It's called the surrounding game for a reason, mm-hmm. um, for those who didn't know. Uh, anyway, short version is this, and I noticed that their ranking system works exactly like the ranking system of most martial arts. And then mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that's interesting. But when I did research on history of Go, I discovered, no, the martial arts got it from Go, mm-hmm. not the other mm-hmm. way around. Because it's a very simple, very logical system which is basically you there's one set of ranks for beginners and there's one set of ranks for masters and you kind of just work your way up to that's what working your way up to a black belt is in say karate black belt is the beginning master rank basically and where you're actually good at it and then there's all these ranks above that and that's how go works as well where there's a bunch of lower ranks and then there's kind of this midpoint and a bunch of upper ranks there's the learner rank and the master rank basically yeah, and it's, it's weird because that's something like, say, in the West, 
mm-hmm. uh, especially for our stories that we never did anything like that. Here you either are the hero or you aren't. Right. And typically we may do an origin. Uh, so you go back to the old like cowboy flicks. Mm-hmm. It's it's always that the hero is like the, the mild-mannered farmer guy and then the outlaws murder his family and he's got to pick up the gun and learn how to shoot. And it's that idea, you're a gunfighter or you're not. Yeah. And and we and and it and it's like you say again, at that point when you enter that that realm, you become the hero. It's the same thing too when we do like superheroes. Superheroes are mm. you're a normal until you're bathed in like nuclear waste and then you have powers and now you're a hero. Yes. And it's 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 I think part of that is because of the 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 West's idea of rugged individualism. We mm. do kind of see heroic traits as an internal thing that you have them or you don't. Right. It's it's that same idea why we can be, uh, and and you see it in, in like the Westerns, he's yellow. Well, it's an inherent thing. You don't learn that sort of behavior. You don't really learn to be the hero. Even if you have to learn the skill of gunfighting, something happens, you become the hero, you go out for revenge. And then like you say, the bad guys always kind of work the same way too, that you've got the supreme villain, you've got like your Darth Vader, and then there's like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And they're all pretty equal, unless you've got dickweeds, and even then your dickweeds are probably not that, they're either comedy relief or they're not that worse than the the lieutenants. Um, to stick with the Star Wars example, you look at like the gal- galaxy's biggest badass, Boba Fett, who gets mm-hmm. accidentally whacked in the ass by a stick by a blind dude and eaten by a giant desert vagina. So, yeah, but they're not... making up for that by giving him a whole new series called The Mandalorian next year. Yeah, it's, how did that poster put it? He's dead, fanboys deal. But but <laughs> but yeah. again, it's it's that weird idea that he's kind of just a fancy stormtrooper. Yep. Even though he gets a name, same thing with like a lot of like the the other ones. They're doing it with like the new ones with uh, Captain Phasma, who dies at least once in every movie, but for some reason, she's the ultimate Boba Fett. You know, she keeps coming back because I don't know, just because because it's it's a Star Wars thing. The cooler your armor looks, the more vulnerable you get. Exactly. But again, it's 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 this idea that we don't up and well again up until you get to uh get to the 70s you don't really start separating the competency like ranks of our hero you're the hero or you're not mm, true true i never thought about that but you're right the american mm. concept is you're either special or you're not yeah hmm or That's... something something happens that makes you special like an accident yes well that's the whole idea that Anyone can be special if luck bestows upon them the, her virtues. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I can't say that the Japanese or the Asian approach is really that different. I mean, the most of the Kung Fu stuff, I mean, yes, there's the learning process, but they always have the potential to begin with. And yes, yeah. they do have to go through a learning process, usually, not always, but usually. But mm-hmm. in the end you're either a martial artist and you're special or you're not. I mean, there are ranks and grades within it, but yeah, but, but one could argue even within Western stuff, there, there are ranks and grades about how, you know, some guys are tougher than others. 
they kind of are. And this is where I think you start getting into um mm-hmm. the, the the this the this gamification. And you get into some of the problems that it, it causes. Because we we don't like to have our heroes ever at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. That's true. And this ties in with like the the D and D thing. So what you're watching, if you're watching a story where the hero is actually progressing and he's making his way through the tougher villains, they're always just at that threshold where if he pushes a little bit, he, he wins. Win. Yeah, there's very few up until recently. And there was tons before because it was that idea, like you said, an old school action film. The hero would look like hell by the end of it. Usually, yeah. Die Hard is um, a good example of that. Kind of. But Die Hard, again, the one I'm thinking of, what was it? Uh, Where Eagles Dare? Right. With Clint Eastwood where they almost drop him off a gun and he just looks horrible. Yeah. He just gets his ass handed to him through that whole film. Yep. Um, Die Hard's a good example of kind of what we got when they started splitting the difference because it looks like that mm-hmm. because he does start it getting some wear and tear, but it doesn't actually affect him. That's true. He does run around awfully well for a man who's got feet completely cut up by glass. Yeah, and he kicks in a plate glass window with those like badly damaged feet too and then manages to still take out the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, it's a valid point. As I always say, he's the poster boy for hit points. Where yeah, all, and that's, all the damage is just superficial because he hasn't reached zero yet or gotten low enough. Well, and after every encounter, he mm-hmm. gets more XP, so he goes up a level and gets a couple extra ones. Maybe he's in one of those systems where he's actually getting a completely new set of XP every time he goes up a level. There are those, too. That's true. Well, if it's the video game model, a lot of them, when you go up a level, you're completely, like, healed up. Yep. (laughs) But that, again, it's weird that we can can look at it. I think what what you're seeing when you see that that kind of more gamerish formula being applied to stuff Mm -hmm. is the beginnings of what leads to the uh, the lit RPG thing. Well, yeah, I was going to say that that that's on the western side of things you should see what things look like on the asian side right now Uh, Uh because of course that's my area of interest oh my god um everything now not everything but so much is all based around gamification and gamer logic and ever and things like so many Mm -hmm. comics and video games and books and all that everything runs on game world logic yeah everything the setting usually has even they don't even hide it. The setting just has rules like a game. <laughs> That's how it works now. Yeah. Well, there's part of that too. Say especially in in Japan and I think most of Asia, where you get that as the first really big example of that was Dragon Ball. You think Dragon Ball ran like a game? It does when you get into what became Dragon Ball Z. Oh, that's true. Okay. Because it it literally became a game. Remember? Because when the the Vegeta and the the other guys show up. They have those scanners. Yeah, it's over nine thousand. Yeah, and they're doing that. His powers reach eighteen thousand, and then you can tell when they go up a level because they get a different hairstyle, right? And it's it's that again that role playing game, that video game thing given form. Mm. And I think again because looking at like how lit RPGs started taking off, say within the last decade or so. Mm. I think you're looking at the next generation that when you get to, say, the Dragon Ball era, you've got enough people 
that are familiar with, say, video games and role-playing games, that it's starting to sneak into how things are done. It is, yeah. And then you get that feel, and then eventually it just goes full-blown because people are saying, well, no, this is kind of working like a like a video game, and why don't we just go for broke and run with that? I don't even think it's that deep. I think that what we're getting into now is we're just getting an entire generation that was raised on games that were more advanced than Pong, like you and I were, um, mm-hmm. and that have literally grown up with the Dragon Ball formula and the video game formula that's like post-1990s and such. And as an end result, the, to them, especially the current generation, games are just like the most normal thing in the world. It's, yeah. it, it, you know, Games are such a fundamental part of their life and or childhood, youth, whatever, that when they go to write stuff, they just naturally write it like a game. I mean, to them, their greatest storytelling experiences, they didn't read novels. They didn't read comic books even. They read, they played games. Mm-hmm. That is their storytelling experience. And I'm not talking D&D when I say these games. I'm talking like World of Warcraft or Skyrim or other games like that. Where right. they're great or Bioshock or other. there are many other uh red dead redemption there's a whole bunch of these other <laughs> video games that have come out in the last like decade or two decades really that were had major story elements to them and to a lot of gamers i've noticed that's like that's a story basically right one of the things i have to do when i'm teaching script writers uh at, at the school in my script writing classes i have to actually how can i put this strongly dissuade them and explain why writing like a video game is a really bad idea Mm-hmm. because it doesn't work very well uh not in terms of like drama because it's just about characters going through mowing things down it's not really all that dramatically interesting i don't know it worked for toriyama yes but toriyama is doing a <laughs> lot of other things to make that interesting toriyama is uh-huh. using a lot of uh tricks there are a lot of tricks that the japanese use which we can go into in another podcast that they're using to liven it up and, and keep it interesting and make it interesting, even when, properly speaking, the actual plot is basically just drop-dead, boring, kind of dull. That's And it's not really, look, the characters are beating each other up. They're beating each other up again. They're beating each other up again. Oh, look, and this one's getting more powerful. Oh, look, blue hair. And that's kind <laughs> of, that's all he does. <laughs> but there are two things. One, he was the first guy to do it. Right. Not, oh, correction, not exactly the first guy, but he was one of the first guys to do it. I think he was um, the first one that openly did it. I think so, yeah. And two, he, yeah, like I said, he's he's doing a, some other characterization tricks and things like that to make it more lively and interesting. Like mm. he, he's, he's doing a pretty good job of mixing it up and keeping it interesting as we go along. So I would argue that yeah, Toriyama set the standard and set the flow, but not everyone who follows that... Uh, how can I put this? Okay, here. The characterization in a video game is drop-dead boring, okay? Because hmm. video game characters are meant to be surrogates for the reader, okay? Right. And even the more, quote-unquote, advanced video game characters, I'm going to put those in air quotes, um, are still basically just reader surrogates. They're drop-dead, boring, bland characters because the reader is supposed to be injecting themselves into the character and injecting themselves into the fun, okay? Mm-hmm. So the character is dull, and the action is mostly from twists and turns as you know, you blow stuff up and beat stuff up. Right. Okay, but that's not very interesting unless there's an interactive component to make that work. 
And that's mm-hmm. what ma- you need interesting characters, which Dragon Ball kind of has. And you need some interesting action and stuff mixing it up. You can make the fighting stuff work, but you need those interesting characters to make it work in fiction when, the, when, the, when there's not that interactivity to add that extra zest to the whole thing. Uh, I think you're onto something. But you don't quite agree with me. Well, because I think I can think of two examples that that they kind of confound your theory. Okay. Um, not the core of it, but the idea of needing that for for the audience. Because when you talk about a game, mm-hmm. a video game or role playing game, what you're getting at is the level of vicarious participancy. Mm-hmm. That it is much higher in any kind of game because I'm making some kind of decision. I'm actually taking part in the action. Exactly. And in some small way, there's a consequence to me of how that action turns out. Yes. In if theory. I, yeah, if the character gets killed, I got to go back to a save point, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When you write a story, you don't necessarily get that. But I'm wondering, there's some other kind of psychological effect that we're missing. Because two examples I can think of, one Eastern, one Western. Okay, go for it. Let's hear them. Uh, so many isekai stories are basically just a role-playing game where, like you say, the character is a stand-in for, for the reader or the mm-hmm. viewer, if it's like an, if it's animated. And the characters tend to be kind of these like really, really bland kind of like reader, I don't know, associate or input or. They're well, they're avatars you... for the reader is what they are. They're, re- they're, yeah. oh, reader surrogates. They're basically surrogates for the reader. Yeah, I think that's probably the best term for it. And and that kind of comes out of that video game tradition. It's a video game with all the danger parts taken out. Mm-hmm. And on the Western side, that's what a lot of like 80s and early 90s action films were. Okay, what do you mean? That, that the hero again was was in a way a surrogate for the audience because they were very bland and typical mm-hmm. and there wasn't much to them except that you know they defied authority and caused a lot of property damage and never went to jail for it for some reason right and it's that idea that that both those cases because you're writing characters like that should be boring as hell but for some reason they touch off that vicarious participancy node that made them that style like the isekai is disturbingly popular in japan and the Mm -hmm. 80s action hero was disturbingly popular like here in the 80s and they keep trying to bring it back so there there's something else there there's another another way to make that connection to the audience with with um without making the character an entity i guess that again they're surrogates for the audience in some capacity and you're getting some weird vicarious thrill from it, even though logic says you shouldn't. Well, okay. Um, one of the things that's happening there, and I'd say that it's happening with both the isekai and the 80s action flicks, is that they're using what I call um, what is it, righteous avenger plots. I'm not sure if we right. talked about that in the show before. Maybe we did. I don't know. Um, short version is, is a righteous avenger plot is usually a plot where the bad guys are really, really evil and usually are evil to a whole bunch of really nice people. And mm-hmm. then the main character is basically just there to kick their ass. That's pretty much it. And make them and pay, make them pay. 
And the most of the story is usually really about the villain and the and the innocents usually who are getting there getting ter- terrorized. The hero right. is pretty much just a blank. The hero is just there to be an observer and to deliver justice onto the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, this formula it gets used all over the place. I mean, a lot of comic, American comic books use this formula. In fact, American pulp stories use this formula sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Basically, the the whole point is that the main character is not actually the focus of the story. They're not really that important. They're mo- again, they're not the thing that's driving the story. They're just kind of wandering through it, mowing down bad guys who really deserve it. Right. Okay. And the audience is totally cool with that. They actually think that's lots of fun. And mm-hmm. that's what a lot of isekai stories is. Uh, that's what 80s action movies are. You know, because that's the thing. The bad guy will always do really horrible stuff at the beginning. Here, it's the death wish formula. If you want another right. example, blatant example of it. You know, the guy, the bad guys come in, they kill and rape the hero's family. And uh, the rest of the movie is basically the hero going through uh, exacting revenge on those bad guys. Does right. the hero have any great plot? Do they have any great uh, motivation, character, arc, hero's journey? Bullshit. None of that shit. They are there right. to do one thing, which is to make those bad guys pay. And we, mm-hmm. the audience, are there to watch and enjoy as those bad guys pay and to see how the hero will do it. Right. And I would argue that's the vicarious element of it. We want to see the bad guys pay and we stick around to see how they pay, basically. Right. Huh. Okay. So that's my take on it anyway. I mean, if you've got another take, I'm, I'm all ears. But... Uh, I, no, I think I, that's the formula that I've noticed that a lot of the isekai run on. And when I think back, I think that's how the 80s action movies work, too. Yeah, they did. But you you kind of had um, for like 80s action movies. And this is mm-hmm. something where I think, again, I don't know if, if it ties in with, with gaming or not or if it's a parallel. It might be a parallel thing mm-hmm. that you got this weird thing that when you got to the 80s action movie, a lot of the again the 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 questionable bits, the scary bits, the dangerous bits got filed off. Because mm. again, like we said, that was the idea that um, in the eighties the villains threatened to do things, right? Like they wouldn't brutally murder your family; they would kidnap your family and threaten to murder them. Well, because that that you have the happy ending where you rescue them at mm-hmm. the end. But that's what I mean. Mm. That that it, it went further that way that it and it's it's again we talked about that weird kind of movie ecology that say in a death wish like the first one or two or out of all fifty eight or however many they did mm. the bad guys did bad things like horrible unforgivable things mm. so there was a morality to the hero gunning them down in horrible violent ways exactly if if you don't have the bad guys doing horrible things then the good guy is a complete psycho. Yeah, he's, and then that's just another bad guy. Yeah, and then that's what you start seeing happening like in the eighties because they take away that consequence to the hero. Where like I said, uh, you mentioned Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Well, in Die Hard, the bad guys didn't kill McLean's wife, they threatened to kill his wife. Whereas in Death Wish, they like murdered his family, beat up his like housekeeper and raped his dog. Like it's it's this idea that you're still kind of getting that that thrill, mm. 
But the negative part that makes it cathartic starts getting filed off. So it's like you said, the hero is more and more just a psycho. So you're just getting the thrill of this guy beating up the villain. There's there's nothing that makes you think, well, they really deserved it. Or Well, can I interrupt for a sec? I, I think yeah. you're 100% right. I'm, I'm agreeing with everything you said. I think that there are a few factors, however, to take into account. Mm-hmm. Um one, when Death Wish was basically meant to be a quasi, um, I can't, I can't call it underground, but basically it's a low budget ac- exploitation action film, right? It's mm-hmm. meant to be brutal. It's cheap. It's, it's even in the seventies, it wasn't meant to be high, high cinema or general, a general audience, basically. Yeah. Um, whereas the action movies that follow it in the eighties are meant to be general audience movies. Okay, so there's a mm-hmm. limit to what they can do in terms of the bad guy actually doing bad stuff because this is the thing you got to remember is that I think it was in the 80s they introduced the new uh, motion picture codes that come down right. because of violence in cinema and such. I think 81, 82, maybe as late as 83 anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And anyway, somewhere in the early 80s, they introduced a new motion picture code. And immediately what happens is there's all you got all these malls opening up because this is the age of malls. It's the 80s. And yeah. all these malls have cinemas in them, which is awesome. Okay, so you can go to local cinema. But they're family-friendly cinemas. They can't show anything R-rated. Mm-hmm. So if you have R-rated content in your movie and you receive an R-rated content, your movie has just lost millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. This is the 80s. Only millions, not tens of millions. Whatever. <laughs> the point is, is that... Um, What's happened is, and this is written into the theater's contracts with the mall, that they can't show anything that's not, quote-unquote, family-friendly. This is one of the reasons why PG-13 was created, if I remember right. It was to slip things in that couldn't be shown in venues that weren't allowed to show R-rated films, so they created PG-13 in the States. We don't have that here in Canada. As, as a way to slip in what really should be R-rated content or more mature content into a place that couldn't show R-rated films. All right? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily like R-rated stuff, but PG-13 came out because they said, well, we want to make a movie and we don't, we, we show tits, but no actual genitals. And there's a little bit of blood, but nobody gets a head cut off. So we don't think we deserve quite an R rating, even though it's maybe a little more than PG. And that's what PG-13 was. It was supposed Basically. to be mm. something with a little more bite than... Yep. than yeah, I remember but, when PG-13 actually did have you know, more mature content. I believe there's a video about that on YouTube. I'll see if I can track it down. There's a great video about how PG-13 evolved and changed over time and how it was once stuff that was actually really strong, but then later on it became stuff that was just as weak as PG, regular PG movies, basically. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, in order to, in order to meet that criteria they the thing that they did and this is the same thing they did in 80s cartoons which always pissed me off (laughs) they kept in all the violence but they took out Mm. all the consequence yeah and this is where we get into more quasi gamification where so you end up with the heroes who are doing lots of violent things and the villains who are doing lots of violent things but nobody actually gets hurt because they're not allowed to have that consequence in a kid's cartoon but even the adult stuff like A-Team, for example. Ten million rounds are fired off every episode, but not a single one actually hits a human being. Yeah. Um, And, no, they build some weird contraption out of a lawnmower and two golf carts, and that's what they use to take down the bad guys. 
Not the fact that they mm. are loaded to bear and have like 50 guns. No, no, we wouldn't actually use that to hurt the bad guys. I mean, that would be wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. So again, it's more, and again, why did they do that? It's because they couldn't do that on primetime network TV. Well, there's, there's, yeah, there's, I think catches with that too, though. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you look at uh, primetime TV during that era, like just before that, mm-hmm. like the cop shows not were always having somebody getting like gunned down. There wouldn't be any blood, but you'd, you'd always see these like big shootouts and the bad guy be like, and grab his like oddly unmarred and unripped suit and fall down and stuff. Yeah, but that's a Western tradition and it's something that the generation that existed who grew up on Westerns wouldn't care about. As long as yeah. there's no actual blood and the guy's goes and falls over, that's not really murder. That's not really that bad. It's just, okay, yeah, it's a murder and everything, but it's a fake theatrical murder and we all know it. We all just go with it. Yeah. I, but you couldn't show that on, say, G.I. Joe the cartoon, for example, because, again kids show you weren't allowed to show that stuff yeah or at least they weren't willing to risk trying to show it as the case may be because you could show it it happened on robotech all the time and they translated japanese stuff all the time so apparently Mm -hmm. you could run it at least in syndication it's just they chose not to yeah yeah well there's there's, anyway but going back to my point is so they took out the consequence which basically removed all the real bite from everything yeah i think what happened to theirs is how that happens is because it starts becoming the tap dance that especially say with movies, you're wanting that bigger audience. Mm-hmm. And that was why action movies in the eighties really change. Well, Mostly because, because of Cobra, Co- not Cobra of uh commando. It, commando. It, yeah. it made all the money and it was, it was a cartoon. And then everybody did that because you still had ultra violence and like your slasher flicks. Mm-hmm. But those tended to be really cheap and weren't trying for a general audience. You're trying for like horny teenagers at the drive-in. Exactly. They were intended for a very specific non-mall audience. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. They weren't meant for a family-friendly environment. And so that was okay. And this, so that's what happened. Everything that had bite moved to the alternative cinema, so to speak. And everything that was in the mainstream had to be sanitized. Yeah. And so we ended up with what you call the gamification effect. But I really think that it actually what we're just looking at is a sanitization effect really there mm. where they're just making it simpler and safer and more family friendly because that's how you make the money. And this is a business. Yeah. Now, do you think maybe because well, what I'm going to say kind of uh, in the other way where I think there's still some kind of weird psychological component when you go to japan you look at all the isekai stories Mm -hmm. the character ending up in this alternate world Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways becomes a safety thing in what way well by isolating them Mm -hmm. you take away a lot of risk and consequence for them you do well the risk and consequence you're taking away is social risk and social consequence yeah, to a, to a large degree. Um, because remember, but, that's important to Japanese and Japanese culture. They are heavily weighed down by the society around them in a way that mm-hmm. North Americans aren't. And all actions are seen to have social consequences and reactions. So a character right. in an isekai world is truly free. Right. This is one of the reasons why Japanese become hikomori and basically hide in their parents' basement and refuse to come out or parents... 
whatever, hiding mm. their parents' apartment and refuse to come out until they're like 36. Uh, and their parents have already moved away five years ago. Um, <laughs> because they really, they just don't want to deal with this world and this incredible social pressure that they feel from this world around them. Yeah, there's that too. And when they always, when you see the hero ending up in this alternate world, in most cases, what's happened now is they don't have like a family to kidnap. Mm-hmm. They they don't have a dog to rape. You know, they don't have like. Um, well, that's you, not you quite can't true. Att- no, you're you're. I don't mean about the dog raping part. Um, I mean that the because I I've never seen a dog get raped in the isekai, but who knows? Uh, I I haven't read all of them. Um, so now that you've said it, it's going to happen. Rule thirty four. Well, there's there is that. I've seen lots of horrible things in isekai, but dogs getting raped is not one of them. And I don't want to have this conversation. All right, so <laughs> moving on, <laughs> moving right along. Um, no, what happens in isekai is the following. Basically, the character gets dumped into another world, and they immediately develop a new family, basically, mm-hmm. who are a bunch of friends and guides who are basically going to help them and are sympathetic to them in one form or another, and will eventually get kidnapped and threatened and everything else that would happen to a normal family, all right? But it's this new safe family of their choosing that are all love them for who they are and appreciate their interest for who they are. And in an isekai, inevitably, whatever nerdly hobby you're into is the most important thing ever in the fantasy <laughs> world that you go to. Um, it can be playing tiddlywinks, and tiddlywinks will be the game of kings that they use to solve all their problems in isekai <laughs> land, apparently. Well, there's another catch to that, too. That's called No Game, No Life, by the way. It's a real show. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking about that uh, that abridged version. Oh, the abridged version, yes. Yeah, you've, just wanna, yeah, you've seen it, right? Yeah, one of the greatest things ever. But there's another catch to that too, and this is where I say it strikes me as being uh, a writing technique that comes out of gaming because that new family mm-hmm. are always other first level characters. So yes, they are. It, it's not like I'm the 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 former earthly high school guy that just ends up in this world and I'm hanging out with a bunch of other clueless urchins. One of them, like the 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 guy who invariably rips him off of something when he gets there and he catches is the good natured thief. And then the the mm-hmm. the the first of his wife who is always like the the healer who who only has like the the bare minimum of the spells and then he always meets like the the slow-witted weapons expert who's just kind of and they're a player mm-hmm. group they're they're meeting at the end like it's literally yep. every D group ever in every yep. one of these stories and that's where i say it's a weird ultra specific trope that you see mm-hmm. and it goes back to the same thing like when you look at the um a lot of the old action stories in that it's always the same idea that that our hero, whoever his like partner or buddies are, if he has them, because in the West you don't always, a lot of times it's a one-man show, but even his partner who's getting too old for this shit is the bureaucrat who's skilled at running interference with the chief. And maybe mm-hmm. he maybe he picks up like his uh his informant on the street that, you know is the Weasley little thief guy, but he knows stuff and gets them in places. And again, it's, it's, it's that weirdly specific old school gaming kind of formula that really takes off after a certain point. Well, I would argue that 
in almost everything, there are certain side characters that appear. I mean, and I'm not just mm. talking about the hero's journey approach. There are certain like character roles that you actually need for the main character usually to succeed in in right. whatever it is they're doing. So, all right. So, in any 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 story, pretty much, you're going to need the following characters or the following roles. I should say need to be played by someone, and they can be multiple mm. people or single people. Even there needs to be an ally. In other words, there needs to be a character that the main character can open up to and actually voice their thoughts to, because this is how we discover what the main character actually thinks if we're not actually inside their head, which in film is really tough and gets mm-hmm. kind of red and dark in there. Um, <laughs> so in other words, there are characters that exist to get to for the main character to act as kind of like a sounding board with and to get them open up. There's usually some kind of motivator character who is there to basically cause them to do stuff. This can be someone who gets kidnapped or this can be someone who gives them orders to do something, whatever. There also needs to be a resource character who provides the character who provides the character with the stuff they need. So for example, the thief is often a character who provides the main character with the stuff they need at crucial points to actually get it done. How did they get it? They stole it, but that's the thing. They're a resource gatherer. That's what they are. There's mm-hmm. usually um, so, some character that's actually learning from the main character in some way especially in ones where the main character doesn't change much. Usually there'll be some kind of uh, innocent character who is uh, looks up to the main character and is basically experiencing a story through their eyes in some way. Or often mm-hmm. we're experiencing the main character's story through their eyes. It depends on the story, anyway. There's some kind of... And then usually there's some kind of like comic relief character who's there to actually help them... To actually help, like break up the tension and everything and to keep things from getting too serious and to keep things going. And so you have these kinds of support roles that exist and someone usually needs to play them. It can be one character or it can be five characters or six or whatever, but you will have the main character will be surrounded by these people in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, you mentioned the healer chick that the main character always, almost always meets at the beginning when he goes off to another land well, congratulations. That is a love interest character, which is also another role that I didn't mention. And that's also a um, resource character. What's the resource? Health. And you should mm-hmm. often information as well. That's the thing, right? When, when you go off to Isekai land, you need a guide. Right. And the first character the main character meets is usually a guide and also usually their first waifu, as you put it as well. And usually a female healer character or a female warrior character. That's the other kind. If the character themselves is a badass, it's a healer. So it's support. Mm-hmm. If the character themselves, the main character that goes there, I mean, is a wuss, the, it will be a warrior character that he'll meet. His first wife will be a warrior character who will basically help protect him. Mm-hmm. So that they can have action adventures and there's someone to actually you know, keep his ass from dying. Until he right. gets strong enough in magic or tiddling winks or whatever to actually be able to you know, defeat the foes himself and save her. And that's a whole big thing in and of itself. Yeah. And the weird thing, too, with uh, a lot of the isekai stuff and anything done from like the 90s on, like um, even a lot of stuff we do here. You see this in, in certain science fiction and that mm-hmm. the team has that you can see a definite progression of ability for everybody on the team. Right, yep. And and because they're all staying at the same level. Well, compared to each other, but they're they're all getting better as they, they go up and work their way through the, the increasingly higher level encounters. Yep. They have to, otherwise they die. Yeah, and, and that's what I mean. That's like I say it's it's a weird specific trope because 
we always had this back in the day. Like I'm thinking again, Lester Dent was uh was uh Doc uh, Savage. Doc Savage and and his his team, what were they the regulars, was it? Yep, something like that, yeah. And they were all specialists as well. Yep. But the old formula that we always had was Doc was always the the, the leader and the most massive macho guy of all. Mm-hmm. And nobody seemed to get better at anything. They were all already the well, they assembled a team of the world's greatest experts of everything you'd ever coincidentally have to run into. And why do we have why do we have an accordion player? Somehow that's going to be important during your adventure. Okay. Exactly. But the thing is they're the world's greatest experts. They can't progress because they're already there. Yeah, and that, and that's what I mean. That's the that's the kind of thing that you see change for us in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And like I said, again, Japan always kind of had that, except that the 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 hero would always outgrow the team. Mm. Except when you start getting into like the the two thousands for Japan, and that you start seeing that idea of the team that they're all developing, that it's looking more and more like a gaming group. Well, again, gaming had a huge influence on it. I mean, if mm. you read interviews with a lot of Japanese uh, writers for manga and anime and such, yeah, somewhere in there, there'll be a reference that they're a huge gamer. Like it mm. pretty much always, sometimes tabletop, sometimes video, usually tabletop, oddly enough. Yeah. Tabletop pops up a lot and it attra- it tends to attract the storyteller types for obvious reasons. Um yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see your point and I, I agree with it, but... Here's my counterpoint, though. Okay. Mm. How do you write a story where the main character, how can I put this? The world isn't progressing with the main character. Like, how do you write a story where the main character is going up in level, but the universe is either falling behind them or there is always already so far ahead of them? It, you know, they might as well not be going up in level at all. You need to have mm. that level curve that's going up with the main character otherwise there won't be that sense of accomplishment and there won't be that sense that the main character is facing challenge really he's either massively outmatched or outmatches everything around him yeah there's well there's different ways because again i think historically a lot of the stories were written that the hero doesn't if they have if the hero progresses it's a spiritual progression Mm-hmm. It's not a technical progression. Okay. So, like, the Lone Ranger is a nameless lawman. His entire, like, squad gets killed. He's the only survivor. And now he's, like, one of the greatest gunmen in the West. He never has to improve his technique. He's just now one of the greatest gunmen in the West. Right. That kind of changes um, for us when you get to the 80s. And this is why... Um, you get the the montage. Well, that's just a sped up version of okay, and now they're massive. Like, yeah, and, but just way but you it jump that. Sorry, so good. It, oh, I was gonna say, but it does, but it delineates that point when they go up a level, right? And I think, oh, what were you gonna say? But I was gonna say, well, they because we want them to be massive because we want to see them kick butt, and so we want to we want that idea that they started off small, but we want we want that you know big fight at the end, and we can't have that big fight unless they've actually zoomed up in the levels to the point where they can have a real fight at the end. Well, yeah, and but again, that was kind of that was a more Mo- and kung fu movies also had montages. Back before Rocky did too, that they, they're yeah. not the first person to have a fight montage, although everyone <laughs> thinks of that. 
it's it's true now rocky is exactly what i was thinking because rocky is kind of um this weird gamification to a tragic degree mm-hmm. and you can see because the first rocky is a brilliant film mm, it is and it's all about like rocky's gonna get his big break he gets to fight the champ it's a publicity stunt for the champ and this is gonna be another 40 year old spoiler alert to those playing along at home mm-hmm he trains, you see him training, you see his personal development, you see his struggle. He gets in the ring and he loses. Yep. But he goes the distance and that's what made it like such a weird, unique, heroic movie. Rocky didn't just win until they did Rocky 2, which is basically Rocky again, but he gets the rematch because Creed's pissed off because everybody loves this schmo and he says, I'm going to put him down for good and Rocky wins. Mm-hmm. that's where you start seeing this weird like gamification formula kick in because then they do like Rocky three where he's got to fight a uh, clubber Lang. Who's this even more awesomely powerful, like unstoppable boxer than Creed mm-hmm. was. Yep. And Rocky's got to like montage and he runs on the beach with Creed and they have like a man hug at the end. And Mm -hmm. he, he gets his ass kicked first time he comes back and he ends up beating the even tougher villain. Yep. And then you get Rocky four. We're like, it's this Russian death machine. That's the product of like Russian science and cold war technology. And Rocky's got to level up even more. And he fights and, and beats. And then the joke was after that, Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he's established world peace. What next? Well, Rocky stops an alien invasion. And as I recall, that's actually how Predator happened. Something like that. Yeah, that's, that that's it, kind of something like that. They, 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 somebody, one of the guys who worked on Rocky Four made that joke and then they hummed and hawed and eventually, wait, we can do like a muscle bound guys fight an alien movie. But it's that idea that what you get is they're always upping that bar. You always need the next encounter is going to be like more powerful, not just different, not just like a different kind of, but that they're straight up more powerful. Mm. And eventually it just gets to ridiculous proportions. Like, like again, you're, you, you look at the, the Rocky thing and then they do like Rocky five and it's years later and Stallone is now like 80. So you got to kind of, they, they kind of do and do the idea that he comes back and there's another guy who's supposed to be like a badass, but Rocky's gone back to like first level. And I think that's why nobody liked it. Cause by that point we're climatized. To, we want that progression that every movie, mm. the stakes are up, the threats bigger, the, the hero has to like, you know, level up and, and it becomes that trope, the, the montage like training scene that like everything has. And that is a problem. That progression issue is definitely mm-hmm. an issue. Um, and everything does that now. You're right. And it causes mm-hmm. all kinds of weird problems. Uh, a good example of this that I always think of is uh, the new Doctor Who. Now, when mm-hmm. I say that, actually, okay, I should be more specific. David Tennant's reign as Doctor Who. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I say that very specifically because the later ones, I think this happened as well. But David Tennant's Doctor Who, they it was the first doctor who series where they start doing season arcs right and so what would happen is is that doctor who would save the save london okay and then mm-hmm. he saved the earth okay mm-hmm. and then he saved the universe okay and then he saved multiple universes okay and then he had to save time and space itself and then he had to save time <laughs> and space and all reality for all time ever period and it on it went and, and then they and then the guy basically said yeah it's enough i've written enough doctor who i'm out 
and he and he handed mm-hmm. it off to someone else who started the cycle all over again with the new doctor. With that would be uh, Matt Smith. I, mm-hmm. Sorry, I blanked for a second there. And so that doctor goes, <laughs> and and that's kind of the new standard, and they're kind of stuck with that in a weird way. I Even mean, Matt Smith kind of went through that cycle too. Actually, mm-hmm. he did go through that cycle if I remember right, uh, because yep. you got this universe level character. Well. What's he going to save? The universe? Okay, but he can only do that so many times without it becoming kind of dull, right? So they keep just kind of resetting him back to first level with each reincarnation, and then they slowly work their way back up again until they run out of ideas. Then it's like, okay, reboot the Doctor. Yeah, see, and and that's that's where, like I say, it becomes that weirdly specific game-looking trope. Exactly. Because when you, when you look at the, the classic Doctor Who... They never did that. Ever. Yeah, he well, he saved the universe a few times, but it wasn't this feeling of upping the stakes. It was the doctor was just always massive. Mm-hmm. Um, he would come in, there'd be a new threat. It would be a different threat. He'd have to kind of clever his way to figure out what was going on and then, you know, defeat the enemy. Yep. It wasn't that every season you had to feel that the doctor was more massive in some way. He was always the doctor. Mm-hmm. You kind of knew he was like super massive, but it wasn't that. And 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 that's exactly it. They kind of start because when you got a uh, was it Eccleson, mm-hmm. uh, the hooligan doctor there. Yes, those were done kind of more like regular Doctor Who stories. Yes, they were. And in fact, his season, if I remember right, no, it does end with the whole bad wolf thing yeah. at the end, which there is a certain element of him saving time or space or something like that. At the end of the first season, even there. Mm-hmm. But it, again, it's small and it, it kind of relates to like the Daleks, like making a reappearance. And then yep, that's true. you get, you get to Tenant, and the first couple of seasons are kind of building a little, but yeah, when you get near the end of his run, they're doing these big stories. When you get to Matt Smith, he like literally has to reboot the universe. Yep. At one point you get to, you could see that. I think that was when they did a, uh, uh, Capaldi there, the next guy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They kind of wanted to get away from that, but the audience sort of comes to expect it. And I think because you've done it and you've got that problem that, again, that's kind of the formula that we write to now. Yep. That and the audience wanna... expects it, as you said. Yeah. And not just for Doctor Who, but for especially the nerdly things, we kind of want to see there has to be bigger stakes. The hero has to be going up a level. Mm-hmm. Because that was one of the things I noticed when you mentioned, like, the Doctor Who, the brand new one. Mm-hmm. The stories that are written, it does feel like the Doctor is a first-level Time Lord. Oh, yeah. They completely reset her. Mm-hmm. Um, Jodie Whittaker? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But not just the Doctor, but, like, the threats are still more, yep. more localized. Mm-hmm. It's kind of playing, again, you can see they sort of wanted to reel it back to kind of, like, the classic era where, like... The monster is weird. It's not threatening the whole universe. It's threat. I think that's one of the reasons they they stressed in the first few episodes the idea that the doctor is very sympathetic mm-hmm. and helps people. She actually has a speech she gives a couple times, and I think that's to try to do an end run around the audience expecting universal consequences. That you want to kind of put that idea that, and this is where the gamification of, of story writing kind of has another weird thing is in the doctor, you want to put that idea that the no name zero level NPCs actually count. 
Mm-hmm. Because when you get to like the universal threats, crunching a few nameless bystanders just doesn't really seem to register anymore. Well, yes, that's the problem, right? And or at least a lot of this problem is coming from the fact that uh, the doctor and even the pulp heroes you were referencing earlier and like Lester Dent's bunch and that they're not changing characters. They're unchanging characters. Like they're, they're, Mm -hmm. they're a fixed entity. So what you're doing instead is you're changing the world around them. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of things like Dr. Who, the reason the threats are getting bigger and bigger is they're pretending to change the world around them is what they're actually doing. Um, So you need to have these big, massive events because the world is not actually changing. He can't, the new universe is not actually going to end and mm. you can't actually have any like serious real consequences for the doctor. Oh sure. They play at it, but in the end they just automatically revert back to the doctor that they've been all along. So there's no real personal or uh, psychological or whatever consequences there, but you want that feeling of change. Like the audience stories in general are about change. So there has to be some element of change and so what they're doing is they're kind of just faking it. They're, that's why they have to constantly have these bigger and badder threats is because they can't change the setting and they can't mm-hmm. really change the characters. So they're kind of doing a magic trick where they're waving their arms really, really fast. And they're hoping that if they wave their arms fast enough, you won't notice the fact that nothing has actually changed and that there's really no point to any of this. See, and, and I think you've hit kind of one of the problems about um, having done this sort of thing for say like I'd probably say since like the again late 90s 2000s do you really to do a fulfilling story do you really have to have change in development ah that's a slightly different topic but okay let's let's dive into it Um, as -hmm. far as we know okay stories are at least according to my research that I've done for my books and such stories are basically attempts at change Okay, mm-hmm. that's that's really what's going on because you've got a, a character that's take a story as a character who takes an action and that action has a result. Mm-hmm. That result is either going to be something has changed or something has not changed. Like that's the most primal, basic form of a story. Okay, right. um, I went to the st- I was hungry, so I went to the store and I bought a hamburger and I felt satisfied. That's mm-hmm. a story. That's a complete story. Right there, we have a character. They did something. They got a re- and they got a result from that. And that's something that uh, you know the human brain can register. We can learn from that. You know that basic form. And then everything else is just even war and peace. It's just that, but super expanded out into like lots of details about why we reached the end that we did. Do you have to actually have to have change? The answer, of course, is no. You don't. But there mm-hmm. has to be at least an attempt at change, and there has to be a sequence of events that explain why you got the end that you did. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It should, because at least apparently according to brain science, <laughs> it does make sense. Um, read Wired for Story by Lisa Cron if you're curious about this and want to know more folks. Um, mm-hmm. But the point is, is that do we need, we, we need at least the feeling that something's happening and that all of this is going to go somewhere, basically. It doesn't have to actually produce change, but we do need a series of events and some result that comes as a, as a result of that series of events. See, I, I think you're on, you've got the right idea, but I would change the the terminology a little bit. Okay, go. I would say that you don't need change, mm-hmm. but something happens. 
well, yes, something has to happen. That's called the that's the action part of that whole formula. Mm. But I would say that that's really what you need because if something happens, then you're going to get some kind of change. And I I I, I think what we've seen in the last 20 years, and this is kind of the, the trait we've been discussing that something that happens, we've become climatized as an audience to think has to be some kind of progression. Okay. And I, I don't think it does to make a fulfilling story. And it's case in point. We've already mentioned Dr. Who look at classic Dr. Who mm-hmm. things would happen. Mm-hmm. But there wouldn't necessarily be some kind of, I'm going to say, inherent progression. Because there'd be consequence, there'd be results. But the doctor ultimately is always the doctor. Companions would come and go. There'd be a great deal of change for whatever setting the doctor stumbled into, like, you know, this this series. So see the environment's changing. Mm. And that's where I think I would say that something happens. Because what I'm getting at now is we're sort of climatized that, yeah, if we don't see, you know, a hero's journey, if we don't see the hero growing and developing, we instantly poop on whatever the story is. That's not quote unquote doing it the right way, even though doing it that way for most of entertainment is a relatively new thing. Right. Well, I mean, for most of, uh, entertainment history, it was mostly, and still in some cases is, is just simply the change is simply returning to the status quo. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff like old who pulps detective stories, for example, mm-hmm. um, the status quo has been knocked out of kilter, so to speak. Things are off balance. And the story is about how the hero restores balance. Mm-hmm. And that's basically how old Doctor Who functions. That's how a lot of things function. But restoring to the old balance doesn't necessarily involve change it well there is change but it's just a restoration of the way things should be in the case of a murder mystery or something like castle or something like that you know the they find the body at the beginning of each episode that shows that now there's an unbalance because there's a murderer on the loose who has not been brought to justice so society is now out of balance the characters go through their great journey of figuring out who's responsible for this. And at the end, they put the murderer in jail, thus restoring balance to society. No one has actually changed. Nothing has really happened except that things have just reverted back to the way they should be. Yeah, now see, this is where I say I would use the term that something happened. Right. And then there's a result of that something happening. Yes. There's a murder. The detective solves it. Yep. Because again, like the terminology that you're using... Mm-hmm is is heading down that that game route it's it's you're looking at it mm-hmm. right out of the gate as some kind of development it is an attempted development all stories are attempted development of some kind yeah I, see i'm i would and, and and that's where like i say i think oh, i wouldn't like i think that's wrong Okay, this is going to get interesting. Um, I don't think it's conceptually wrong, but like I say, I think using those terms, frame it in the wrong light. Okay. Um, I know what you mean, but I'm not quite sure this is going to be boring for our audience. Uh, I know what you mean, (laughs) but I don't exactly know how to say it. I know I understand mm-hmm. what you mean because, for example, I'm used to um, some like Japanese slice of life stuff. For example, okay, right. um, let's let's use something like that. For example, which 
Yo, so we have a slice of life story. Okay, so let's say um, a woman is sitting down at her desk. Okay, she sits down at her de- at her desk at her office. Um, she uh, um, reaches for her coffee cup. When she pulls it up to it, when she pulls it up and she's about to drink it, she realizes there's a spider sitting on the rim looking at her. And in a if this is a typical Japanese slice of life stuff, it will, something ha- will happen that's unexpected. So instead of like screaming and throwing it across the room, she kind of goes, huh. And she starts like poking at it and kind of like playing with the little spider a bit or something like that. And it's like, hey, you here, little guy, you want some food or something like that? And just starts, you know, having fun with the spider. And, so, and mm. then the last caption reads, and she didn't get any work done because she spent afternoon playing with the spider. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that would be a Japanese slice of life story. Now, there isn't exactly progression as you're talking about going on there, right? Mm-hmm. We have a character who took an action and then something unexpected happened. It's like, oh, hey, look, there's a spider here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the character made a choice. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is kind of cute. And so they start playing with the little spider or something like that. And, mm-hmm. that was, and that's, the result of, that's the result of the way they chose to deal with this situation that came up, this little, you know, unexpected surprise. Okay. Mm. That's not a story that actually has progression, not in the tr- traditional Western sense, which is mm. why that style of story, the Kisho Tenketsu is what it's called, confounds a lot of Western um, uh, non-Japanese readers. Yeah. And other people, because they don't quite know how to interpret that because it lacks that kind of progressive change that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously, I do understand what you mean by there's not always a progression there, but there was still a character, there's still an action that they're taking, and there is still an end result of what happens when they do that thing. Yeah. And um, that's I, all I'm trying to say. That's what a story is, basically. Yeah, and what, what I'm, because we, we had the kind of a three year argument about this with Jack. There's our mm-hmm. Jack reference talking about the Hi, hero's Jack. journey. Yeah. How everything doesn't have to be the hero's journey. And it kind of ties into that mm-hmm. because I'll use the example if you watch like a classic sitcom. Right. Oh, no, the Beave didn't do his homework. And in the end, something happens and dad gives him money. You know, Beave, it's an important part of development that you'll have to do your homework. Well, gee, dad, I understand. But Beave doesn't because he's going to do something dumb next episode. Yep. Because the thing is, the Beave is just, as Wally would say, a dumb little kid. Yeah. And he's always a dumb little kid. Yep. And that's perfectly cool because we're tuning in just to watch him do dumb little kid stuff. Yeah. And we he's, do that every episode. And we don't want him to change. We want Beef to stay exactly the same. Yeah. And, and he's not going to until, like, he's no longer cute and they bring him back. And now he's, like, an adult doing dumb little kid stuff, which is sad and disturbing. But, but And they keep that's, rebooting it five or six times. But anyway. Yeah. But when you do that, when you do that original... Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing wrong with with that lack of development. Like that's yes. just the kind of story it is, and it's a story. It's a valid story. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the lines, and this is where I say I think this is one of these weird side effects of this this more gamer style writing that kind of infused itself. We got this idea that that's totally wrong. That's totally unfulfilling. It should not be that way. At mm-hmm. least if you're a critic, because they still make soap like sitcoms that are, are that formula and work that same way. Oh yeah. But amongst the, the 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 literati, I guess, there's that idea that that's wrong. That's flat out wrong. 
or you get yes. that weird thing where people will try to say if it's something that's popular or they enjoy they'll try to say no that's actually there's development there there's progression beef actually he didn't learn a fucking thing because he's not going to do his homework three episodes from now again but it's it's and it's that idea that on the audience end we've become climatized to expect that it's 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 the same thing with with like the Doctor Who that we've expected that the threat gets bigger, the Doctor's power gets more massive, and that's why mm-hmm. they have to kind of do a weird end run when they bring that back down to quote unquote to, to Earth, I guess. Right? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think some of that is the result of well, okay, there are definitely two forces involved there. One of them mm-hmm. is a reaction to generations of uh, TV that had no change whatsoever, that was purely episodic where nothing right. ever could change everything was static so you got to remember that our whole gen- our generation was a generation that grew up on television and we dreamed of tv shows that would actually change and grow and develop that was something right. that we dreamed of the only time we ever saw something that even approached that was like tv miniseries or yeah. you know, occasionally a season of a show would have a cliffhanger that was like a big development. And then, of course, you know, the first episode, the next season, it goes completely back to the way it was. And we're back to level one again. We're back to zero again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Also, they eventually realized something that audiences around the world have known for a long time. In fact, everyone's known this for a long time, which is that audiences love stories that progress. They mm-hmm. love stories that change, and they love stories that progress. But I think what you're actually complaining about is not stories that progress. It's stories that are faking it. Okay? And that's mm-hmm. what most modern television in North America does. Um, and I'm referring to regular network television. I'm not talking about, say, Game of Thrones here, for example, where there is progression actually going on. Like, things are actually developing. People are living and dying, etc. They're following mm-hmm. the Sopranos model, which came on the the actual serial television model. But most television is faking progression. And they have been since right. like the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s, really. I mean, mm-hmm. the the, the uh, grandmother of this, of course, was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where mm-hmm. every episode, every season had the big bad. And that's what everyone calls it now. And because the truth is, that's how they're all written. They're all written exactly like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's yeah. always some big story arc that's going on in the background where they have a whole bunch of episodes where nothing really important happens and nothing really changes. Because you can mm-hmm. watch episode three and you can watch episode 19 back to back and guess what? You don't really miss anything. You might miss yeah. a few minor details or something like that, but that's it. But that's how everything is written now because there's no mm-hmm. real change. Like all the change in the story is fake. It's all just reshuffling the deck chairs. Right. And then at the end of the season, they have some big event happen that seems really, really big. And then the main characters manage to just stop it. And then unsurprisingly, the next season starts and everything is back to exactly the way it was. Maybe the characters are a little tougher. Maybe they're a little more capable than they were. Like, but really, you know, minor power level changes or something. But again, this is the formula that's been going on for like 20 years now and people love it. I mean, or at least, well, they, okay, that's, (laughs) you run into problems though, because yeah. The shows can't actually change anything. And so the writers in the... Uh, usually they got about two good seasons of action and character and stuff that can like that's driven and seems to be going somewhere and is interesting. And then usually about season three or four, things can start to completely go off the rails. Because at that point, they're just making shit up to keep it going on. Yeah. And they're coming... Okay, so here's the new bad guy of the week that's like... Just like the last bad guy, but has a different colored 
uniform or something like that and has a slightly, slightly different plan for why they plan to kill everyone <laughs> or take over the world or something. Referring, of course, to like the CW shows, etc. Or yeah. how they're going to destroy vampire society or whatever, whatever version you're doing this. This is the new version of the game where there's fake change, but there's not real change. Right. Which is not bad itself i mean okay fine there's kind of but the problem with it is is that it they're trying to have it both ways they're trying to have their cake and eat it too and so you end up with something that's not completely episodic which would be perfectly fine or not completely Mm -hmm. serial which would also be completely fine but something that has both the best and the worst aspects of both of them because they're constantly trying to convince you there's change but even even a five-year-old child can watch that and go there's no change here there's no actual development really happening yeah, I think that's it. I think you also get the weird thing too, like when you look at your like mm-hmm. more nerdly stuff, that it's that idea that they want to keep up in the 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 hero's power level mm-hmm. and doing like more massively awesome, spectacular things, but it eventually starts leading to some really awkward questions. Mostly having to do with the fact that they don't have the budget to really show the hero at po- their new power level. <laughs> Well, that and, like, the classic example I can think of of that formula going wrong was Bleach. Okay, how so? Well, Bleach starts out, and it's it's kind of a self-contained story, and it's it's this guy that can see, like, boogly monsters. They're, like, right. ghosts and stuff. And you find out there's this ancient group that, like, their job is to, like, fight ghosts and send them on to the afterlife. And, okay, this is fine. And then the what is it the spirit council or whatever the uh the soul society the soul society who are in charge of this they come under attack and okay well i've seen this the bad guy shows up and our hero uh uh, ichi ichigo yeah has to like has to join and learn their technique and helps fight off the monster okay cool and then like next season there's another group Mm -hmm. who are a bigger bunch of badasses that are threatened and then they get beat and then there's another, and you're like, well, this third group, shouldn't we, since they're like godlike in power, shouldn't we have heard about them before? And then you beat them somehow, and there's just another group, and it gets this weird, endless cycle of just a new villain, and then every season there's a new power you have to learn to beat that specific villain. And you're like, well, why didn't you just teach that to him two seasons ago, and we could have wrapped this up in a hurry, you know? And it, it leads to yep. those kind of weird, awkward questions. Yes, it does. Yeah. But again, they're just patting it out. They're just like, this really worked really well. They're referring to the whole Soul Society arc, which everyone who ever talks about Bleach, that's like their favoritest thing ever is the Soul Society arc. And yeah. they all pretty much universally agree. Yeah, just stop watching Bleach after the Soul Society arc and you'll be much <laughs> happier. Because what you're going to get is just an endless series of repeats of the Soul Society arc with different characters and slightly different plots and less and less backgrounds. Um, at least for the <laughs> comic, anyway. Uh, Bleach, right. Bleach is the Bleach. In case you ha- haven't heard, folks, is the comic where at a certain point the author said, "You know, I don't really need to draw backgrounds anymore," and just stopped. Like literally, the characters just the comics literally just don't have backgrounds anymore. They just have a few. They just have a horizon line, basically. And they well, there's no no world around the characters. <laughs> They're just them fighting each other. That's- that's true because at one point they go to another dimension that's just basically it's like a desert so it's a line (laughs) it's a line yeah that's that's his excuse oh they're in another desert dimension so it's just a line it's like uh uh-huh 
And it's just watching characters fight with no backgrounds. I, I'm sure the background artist was pissed. He's like, what the fuck? Um, or fired. But, and, of course, Tite uh, Tite Kubo, I believe his name was. It was probably like, dude, you're fired. Get out. Um, <laughs> and he saved himself a whole lot of money that day. Um, right. So the point is, again, the point is that, uh, but the you know, the background really didn't matter. And yeah, and the and the ratings kept going down, and eventually the comic got canceled because they basically said, you know, no one really likes this comic anymore. Just wrap it up. But because again, you can only keep doing the same thing so many times, and people get, will get tired of it. That's what we're running into with modern pseudo serial television: is yeah. that they're just doing the same thing season after season after season, and the audience eventually catches on and just goes, you know, I don't really like this anymore. I watched this whole basically this exact same thing five or six times. I'm kind of done. Yeah, but it's because the whole point again is it's that mentality of well, we got to milk it as long as we can, and the audience likes this, so just keep doing more of that. Yeah, I think you're starting to see it too with like movie franchises and that as well. Mm-hmm. That they keep upping the bad, and then they'll do a sequel with, and this bad guy's a bigger badass than the other bad. Really, and you didn't think to mention this to us before. And well, it's going to how- be in- sorry, didn't try. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting after Avengers Four comes out uh, next year uh, because yeah, the Avengers have actually saved the universe at this point and killed off the mm-hmm. universe's big bad. Yeah, good luck continuing your movie franchise, folks. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, who are they supposed to fight next? Like, you, you, we're now at Doctor Who levels again, where it's like, yeah, okay, maybe all of space and time, I guess, is what they're going to rescue next? I don't know. Yeah, because what's well, the thing with Marvel? You can just keep, it's another cosmic entity. They still have a bunch. Thanos isn't even one of their cosmic entities. That's true. They haven't actually gotten to the truly cosmic entities yet. That, that is true. But I think this is one of the reasons why you see too with um like your your Marvel uh franchises, uh and not just with the movies, see, even with like the, the TV shows, the cartoons and that. Mm-hmm. They're bringing in more and more of the secondary characters, and I think part of that is because they are kind of looking to scale things back. Yep. So if you can bring in like We'll make Hawkeye the hero. Well, now you can scale it right back because he's just an asshole with a bow. Yep. So so that that works out really good. And if we introduce more of the street level characters, then we can we can keep our universe going from a slightly different point of view and not have to worry about, okay, so this time um the Living Tribunal shows up. Oh no, what do we do this time? Kind of thing. Yes and no. I mean, the presume Avengers team, at least for the movies in any way from this point on we include dr strange and captain marvel who they've already basically made clear is going to be like almost you know god level herself she's they're basically saying her up to be the strongest being short of the hulk in the marvel universe um so and then she's gonna be on a team with like hawkeye and ant-man so i i don't know how that's (laughs) gonna work but whatever you know or they are gonna be on the team because dr strange is also massively powerful so i'm not sure Exactly. I think they do want to focus more on the cosmic stuff because they realize that the Earthbound stuff is getting a little stale. So that's where they're, that seems to be where they're headed for their next like generation of films. Okay. Um, but we'll see. But you're, but actually, I think that, uh, but again, as I've said many a time, I think after Avengers 4 comes out, I think that they're certainly going to start to get diminishing returns on these like superhero movies. I think we're going to start to see the end of this because people have kind of seen all the permutations. And okay. it's like, okay, we've watched all this. We've watched 20 of these films, and we've now seen them go from fighting World War II bad guys to uh, 
you know, saving the universe. Yeah, okay, that's kind of it. I, mm-hmm. I think we're, we're done. And, I mean, they'll keep doing it, and some of them will be okay, but I, I still think the modern audience is probably going to start to phase out at some point because everything goes, folks. Westerns went, and they were the most popular things on God's given earth for like 30 mm-hmm. years. And then one day, they just disappeared. And superhero films will be the same. The scary thing that for me is that they will probably be replaced by anime remakes because that's the next oh. generation that's going to be making the stuff that they grew up on. Yeah, they're already doing that, aren't they? They are. Battle Angel Alina comes out in two months. Yeah, and wasn't there like a Western-made uh, uh, Death Note live-action series? We don't talk about that. <laughs> it wasn't a series, though. It was just a one. It was a movie that was intended kind of to be maybe a pilot for a series, but I th- think it didn't quite work out, so I don't know if they're making another one. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, they they keep trying, but they haven't managed to make it work. But But then again... They tried to make Marvel movies for most of the 90s, and most of them were stinkers and medium-budget films that didn't that did okay, but only nerds liked. You didn't like the Fantastic Four? Oh. Um, <laughs> the point is, it wasn't until Iron Man came out in 2007, by, the, by which point they'd already made like a dozen or so Marvel movies before anyone went, wow, these are really good, and everyone went nuts for it, basically starting mm. with Iron Man. So... We we you know, Marvel movies seem like automatic slam dunks now, but there were a whole bunch of stinkers before they eventually figured the formula out and made it work. And it'll be the same with anime remakes. Yeah, well, kind of too though, because when Marvel did the Blade movies, those were pretty popular. But I don't think too many people realize that those were Marvel movies. That's very true. Technically, Blade was actually I think the first big screen successful Marvel superhero in terms of mm-hmm. you know popular popularity, basically. Um, Not Howard the Duck. No, we don't talk about him. <laughs> and the first X-Men movie, like the X-Men movies, did reasonably okay. And mm-hmm. then there was the Spider-Man movie, which did actually quite well. That's true. I shouldn't say they were all stinkers. There was uh, there were some mm-hmm. movies that did okay, but they weren't great films. The, well, mm-hmm. the first Spider-Man was pretty good, and the first Blade was pretty good, and the second X-Men was pretty good. But we won't talk mm-hmm. about the rest of them. Anyway, but they didn't really kind of get the hang of this thing. And this is one of the reasons why even though DC's been trying, they haven't been able to make the whole universe thing work for them. They've even given up on it. They just said, screw it. We're just going to make superhero movies. And if they work, they work. If they don't, they don't. We're not building towards any super shitty universe because it doesn't fucking work. Even though Marvel's just done 20 of them and it worked fine. Yeah, and DC's secretly actually doing the movie Empire universe thing. They are. They're just not. They're not announcing it because they're afraid that if it doesn't work, it's just not going to work. Because they tried that, it didn't go so well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so because Aquaman, which comes out here next week, will probably do perfectly fine for the sounds of it, and they have that and Wonder Woman. So next they can have Aquaman and Wonder Woman team up or something like that. Mm-hmm. Although I heard most of their other Justice League movies actually got canned. I mean, even the guys who played Batman and Superman are both ba- are both out. I've heard. So they don't even have yeah. them anymore to to lean on. I I did hear they're working on a Plastic Man movie. Like I said, they're kind of trying random shit at this point. Yeah. Um, anyway, so let's let's I should stop swearing. We should get back on track. <laughs> um, I do find the idea though that the universe is moving with the character fascinating. I think you're right. Like it's you know, but at the same time, I do think that just generally the the correct way to do it. I mm-hmm. mean, the other way to do it, I suppose, as you 
kind of intimidated would be to basically say, okay, here's the universe at its full level and this is what it actually looks like. Okay. Mm-hmm. There, here's our little character in his rinky dink corner who's like level one. Let's watch him, you know, manage to get up to the point where he can stand with everyone. And we could do mm-hmm. a situation where he's purposely trying to avoid people that are more powerful than he is. I, I have seen this done. They know right. that they're actually rinky dink, and so they're being very careful about who they fight. So instead of mm-hmm. a universe that constantly seems to be matching the character, we've got the character per- matching the universe or matching what they can handle as they slowly yeah. progress. Some of the, a lot of the Shenshaw stuff does that. And actually, I, I don't mm-hmm. mind that. I kind of prefer it, actually. Well, you know what the best example of that is? Oh, what? Star Wars. Yeah, there we go. Hmm. Yeah, Luke stayed the hell away from Vader. Vader was badass right from the beginning, and Luke knew it, and he knew he couldn't take him, so he stayed away until the end, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, and that was it. It wasn't that like Vader got more powerful every movie. He was just he was the 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 pinnacle. He was yep. he was he was the final boss, but he was up there from the beginning. Like it it wasn't. Um, it was well. The whole story was about their uh, their meeting. That was what it was all built around. Yeah. Really, ultimately, it was about that confrontation between the father and the son and all that stuff. His hero's journey. Mm. There you go, Jack. Um, so, <laughs> I think, yeah. But how is that different from a martial arts movie where the you know the martial arts evil masters come in and kill the hero's family at the beginning, and the hero has to train and work his way up to eventually facing them at the end? Mm. That's not really any different. It, well, it kind of is because again, the uh, the 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 kung fu films would set up that that progression at the beginning. Like you usually knew who the lieutenants were, and you knew what their ranking was. Right, yeah, they made it very clear because then, you knew what low. Basically, that's the order that the hero is going to try to tackle them. Right. Yeah. Whereas, like I say, our stuff here was usually there's a bunch of bad guys. One guy is awesome. And then the countryside is just kind of littered with the rest of them that mm. you're sort of make you're you're trying to get right to the main bad guy, but these other assholes keep getting in your way kind of thing. Yep. Yep. That's a standard version, basically. I mean, or, or mm-hmm. the Hokuto no Ken version, should I say? <laughs> a Hokuto no Ken is you wander around without moving your hips <laughs> and then you just run into random bad guys <laughs> who are already dead. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if you have to dodge, I mean, you absolutely have to dodge. You do it by kind of turning your head a little but, bit. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. All right. So, yeah, that's 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 the hook to no kid approach. But generally speaking, he was just dealing with endless levels of low level, you know, common soldier guys. And then every now and then he'd encounter a boss who would think he had the upper hand for about 15 seconds. And then Kenshiro would inform him that he was already dead and the bad guy would explode. Yeah, and then that because that was again a very West Western style story yes. because up until they got to that idea of like Kenshiro's million brothers, every group of bad guys he ran into, they weren't getting progressively more powerful. They were just another bunch of these bad guys. Because well, Kenshiro is already the pinnacle, and they made that very clear. So. Yeah. Again, it's back to that Righteous Avenger plot that I talked about earlier, where this is the North Star stories are really not about Kenshiro. He's just there to deliver divine justice. Mm-hmm. The bad guys torture innocent people, and then eventually Kenshiro does away with them, and balance is kind of slowly sort of restored. 
and then he moves on to another post-apocalyptic town where the same thing happens over and over and over again. Um, keep mm-hmm. in mind, Fist of the North Star was also written by a guy whose Japanese uh, pen name is Buronson, who named himself after yeah. Charles Bronson, who, of course, was a, <laughs> a Western gunfighter character. He loves them gunfights. Mm-hmm. And and that's what it was. Like, Ken, Ken Shiro's, uh, the Hokuto Ken is basically like the old, the old, uh, the old, like, spaghetti West. Yeah, he's the man with no name, basically. Mm-hmm. He's one who gets up a little less but overall he just you know he wanders from place to place and uses his badass skills to bail the locals out i mean that's that you know it's the western formula yeah but the thing that if that was written nowadays every three episodes we'd see him having to learn something new to beat like this villain because he's more powerful exactly if it, what was done these days yeah you're about right or he'd have to learn some um new trick to deal with the next major bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which he kind of does, but yeah. yeah, but the running thing was he didn't have to learn them. It was just that this martial art was just so crazy overpowered that whatever he ran into, he had some specific technique that was designed just to deal with this one specific guy. It seemed like, yeah, basically, I mean, he would, be at a slight disadvantage while he figured out what this bad guy could and couldn't do. And then as soon as he figured it out, it was just over. Yeah. And that's the formula. <laughs> and uh, okay. Yeah. It was a pretty good formula. It works. It works very well. I mean, he, but as you mm-hmm. say, until we get to Raul and the other brothers, that's kind of it. Yeah. Cause there's no one who can face him. Yeah. And then it, it then, then it turns into dragon ball that, yep. you know, but I must learn this technique and practice this, and then my rating goes up even higher. And but is okay. But to go back to what we were saying earlier, though, progression itself is not actually a bad thing. In fact, I think progression is the natural way stories are told. I think it's just the problem is pseudo progression or fake progression is what's I think driving you and many people nuts. It's the idea that this there has to be this weird attempt at progression, whether there really is or not. Or lip service, yeah, to it, well, I should say. Yeah, that and then the other thing that bothers me nowadays is that that progression is always done a very specific way. Mm-hmm. And it's very like again, it's it's that 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 like role playing game version that you can literally watch the characters going up in level like they would in a game and it it starts feeling kinda arbitrary after a point. Right. Okay. I can see that. Now, especially the the idea that the universe has to get more massive to deal with the hero. Well, because the hero has to be challenged. So the universe has to balance in some way. I mean, that's just natural as part of the story. But it's that idea that that like new massive threat. In a lot of cases, we should have been aware of a lot like it again, that would go back to like the older formula. Yeah, pretty much. That we we we'd know who the top villain was, and we'd have a rough idea of who the 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 dickweeds in that were and where they stood from the beginning. It wasn't that oh, I have like beaten the 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 uh, I, I've I've beaten Vegeta, and then this other guy shows up from out of space, and then mm-hmm. I beat him, and this other guy shows up, and then there's these other more powerful guys after that, and then this uh, you're like. Where are they coming from? Mm. 
But again, that's kind of a throwback to some of the old stuff, though, where every episode, the main villain sends out a new lieutenant to try to stop the hero. Yeah, they do. But again, it, it, it was that idea with the, the older stuff that you knew who the top end was. Mm, that's true. Like, um, to, to put it in superhero context, Lex Luthor was going to have another evil plot. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He was going to have another evil gimmick that Superman would beat, but Lex Luthor himself wasn't raising his gadgetry level every book. He would just come up with something new that was weird. You knew that Lex and Superman in their own ways were already evenly matched, and if it ever came down to a direct like duel between them... Mm-hmm. It would, it would, uh, it either, it wouldn't be definitive or that would be the end of the story. That, that, again, it wasn't that Superman had to get more massive every, he'd get weirder powers because that was, you know, in the Silver mm. Age. But that would usually be part of the story. It wasn't that he was going up a level every couple of stories and Lex would go up a level and eventually it would lead to, to that confrontation. It, it was just, they were at their points and that's where they were. And they represented the pinnacle of that universe. Right. Yeah. We're watching these two gods have a chess game with each other. Yeah. But they don't get more godlike every, every, every story. Right. It's just, they're already kind of there. And that's a perfectly good way to tell stories. I mean, it's not one that we mm-hmm. do so much anymore, but it is a perfectly good way to do it. I mean, there are other mm-hmm. approaches, like there's the traditional Star Trek approach, where every episode... Tachyons? What? Tachyons? Tachyons, exactly. Every episode, <laughs> thanks to tachyons, um, th- things kind of reset. We all, we, they automatically meet some aliens that are exactly at the right level to do what needs to happen for the story. And um, they, but, but the Enterprise is encountering lots of different guys. There's not really... You know, we're carrying this guy and then these more massive guys and these more massive guys. Traditional on Star Trek, it was usually just they encountered guys, different guys each week. And that was kind of it. You know, they had different stories mm-hmm. and different encounters. And some of them were tougher than others and some of them were weirder than others. But that's kind of how it was early on. I mean, mm-hmm. by the time they got to Deep Space Nine and Voyager, they did actually start to have a progression going on, though, where they were encountering progressively yeah. worse bad guys. Yeah, and, and they were progressively like, upping their abilities because that was like the original Star Trek. You might run into a bunch of cavemen this episode. And next episode, you're arm wrestling Apollo. Mm-hmm. The the Enterprise crew themselves, again, didn't necessarily progress. There was, it was a big universe mm-hmm. and the threat levels varied depending on, on who you encountered or what the problem was that way. Right, yeah. And you're right that by the time you get to say like the 90s shows – they were doing that thing where they were always upping that threat level. Now at that point it was kind of a new a new way of doing stories. Yeah, it was. But every season yeah, every season ended with the coming of the more powerful villain and they kept getting more and more and and then you run into that problem that eventually you start hitting mm-hmm. kind of the logical limits of, of of your setting. Yeah. Yeah. Well Voyager solve that problem by constantly going to new settings right but for some reason the closer they got back to home the more badass all the aliens became well yeah there was voyager was a weird one because uh they they did something pretty smart towards the end Mm -hmm. 
And it was because it was that progression. You started with with what was it, the Kazon? Yeah. yeah. Which were Klingons with bad hair. Yep. And then it was like every episode it was like, you know, the Borg. Mm-hmm. And then it was those weird CGI reptile kind of things that like hated the Borg and were more massive than the Borg. Yep. And then they kind of put a halt to that because they started doing the stories about the 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 sucky baby alien and the kid. Yeah. Well, they just and, changed and the those, focus of the show. Yeah, and those were good. And then they started doing stories about the characters in the last couple seasons. And those were really good because you got to see these like weird, different, interesting things. You didn't have to worry about ever ever increasing power levels until the very last part of the show where it was like and all of a sudden like you know we're almost back to earth and all hell breaks loose and everything's massive and fight 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 well they did that's how voyager ends spoiler (laughs) again 40 year old spoiler no 30 year old spoiler in this case but that is how voyager Mm -hmm. ends i mean they discover that the borg are finally going to uh you know assault earth and everything like that and they yeah, anyway, then they they stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I mean, they reached the point, I think, especially once they hit the the tripod reptilian aliens that could, like, tear the Borg apart. They basically realized that the Voyager was, was an ant among um, giants, basically. And they realized, you know, mm-hmm. we can't really do this progression thing anymore. We better do something else. And so that that's why they focused on something else, which is the occasional encounters with, you know, badass aliens from that point on. Mm-hmm. And then, and that was like Deep Space Nine as well, where eventually they meet basically God, kind of, yeah. And then you f- yeah. you f- you find out that the main character basically is God, and you're like, okay, this is strange, but sure, right? I guess. But you could kind of so you can get away with that if there's like an end, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's the thing, right? At towards the end, you can actually have real progression happening. Because you don't have to, yeah. you don't have to stretch it out like a piece of silly putty anymore and elongate it. You basically, it's like, okay, yeah. this is the end. We can actually work towards the end, and that's where things start to really kick in and get interesting again. Because you're actually now watching real progression instead of fake progression. Although sometimes, even then, because I remember with uh, Voyager, when they did the end of the series, there was a lot of stuff that they did to wrap things up. That you're like, where the hell did that come from? Yeah, like like there was the one where the uh, the the Borg and the uh, first officer guy I can't remember their names. Oh, Chicote and Seven of Nine. Yeah, where they ended up together because they were in love, and you're like, you know, we saw absolutely no sign of this at any time during the series except the last episode. You're like, well, you know, they have to give them something to do, I guess, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, there was a few things because I got the impression they sort of realized, oops, wait, we neglected like most of these characters. And then to have kind of an ending to their story, you had to kind of give them their story at the beginning of the episode and then wrap it up for the finale. Pretty much, yep. Actually, that's something I've begun to hate is ensemble shows. They're really Uh something I find incredibly annoying. And I'll tell you why. This goes back to my comment earlier about you get about two, maybe three good seasons and then everything goes to hell. It's because, uh-huh. not just because of the fake progression, but because with an ensemble show, there's a, what's happening is, is you have all these characters. And so you're, at first you're like getting to know them all. And so they all have their own stories. And they all have their own shit that's going on. But eventually you run out of 
stuff for those characters to do. You've basically explored those characters usually by the time you get to season two or three. And so they're like, mm-hmm. how do we solve this problem? We add more characters to the cast. And so they just progressively, every season or every two seasons, they just add more characters to the cast, to, you know, to liven up the mix. But they don't get rid of any of the old actors. And so you've just got this ever-growing cast bloat going on of these characters. Right. And by the way, because they're all under contract and they're all, you know, main characters, you have to give them all time every episode. So Arrow is a beautiful example of that, to go back to a CW show. But again, this comes from Star Trek. This has been going on for a long time. Buffy has this problem too. But I'm going to use Arrow as a good Mm. example. When Arrow starts, it's a show about one dude. Okay? It's about him. And eventually he picks up another dude who's his his support team. Okay, that's it. It's just the two of them. Mm -hmm. Then they pick up a chick. And then they pick up another partner. And then they pick up another character. And then they pick up another character. By the way, no one's leaving. And then they pick up another character. And then one does actually finally leave. And then they, they decide, you know what they decide? It's like, wow, we've got too many people. So they get rid of two people and they add four more. And it's like, and <laughs> so it's just this constant attempt to rotate. And every episode, they have to come up with some bullshit excuse for every character to appear in the episode because they all got to appear in the episode or they don't get paid. And they're paying for all these right. characters. And why are they doing this? Because drama is cheap. So every now and then they throw in action yeah. sequences and they do stuff, but the, but 90% of the show is still a drama with people arguing with each other or, you know, unhappy about things. Who, by the way, will figure everything out usually by the end of the episode. Right. <laughs> um, and this is something that a reason I don't like ensemble shows or I've come not to like them is largely what I talked about, about cast bloat. Um, but also because the show tends to just, yeah, lose its focus. Like, if you have a show mm. where there's just a very small core cast and then other people come and go and everything, that's fine. That's okay. But when you're doing a show that's really just about these seven people and permutations of these seven people arguing with each other, that's interesting for only so long. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Or funny for only so long because that's also what a sitcom is basically. Yeah. They're using the same form. But sitcoms at least don't try to progress, pretend to progress or go anywhere. No, they do. They they. Well, modern there's ones a lot of sitcoms do. Yeah, that do that. Sort of. I mean, they'll do things where like there'll be kind of slow progression, which usually amounts to something that happens during sweeps week once or twice a season. Yeah, I think part of what ended up bringing that to sitcoms was Friends. Yeah, I can see that because they started they started pairing them up, and it would be would they end up together? Would these end up together? And then. That starts you down that road of development, mm. which you kind of can't really do. Yep. But there's, yeah, I've seen a, a few sitcoms for the amount of time I can watch them. That there's, again, there's that weird need for progression. I think some of it, though, is a human need. Like I said, we do, we kind of like these characters and we want to see them in some way, you know, uh, maybe just through their relationships kind of move forward in their lives. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, we see characters with wants and needs, like who are lonely. We want to see them find someone to, you know, like hang out with and such, or you know, to have a relationship with. And so mm-hmm. we do want to see that character um, hook up with another character and maybe have a good relationship, or maybe it doesn't work out, and that's okay. I don't mind a story about characters where the main character has relationships with one person for a season or two, and then it doesn't kind of work out, and so they break up, and then they have a relationship with another character. That's fine. I'm totally okay with that. 
Um, mm-hmm. But there are different kinds of sitcoms, though. I mean, there are sitcoms that are a little more yeah. a drama sitcom and where there is it needs to be some actual progression and things happening. And then there's other sitcoms where that are more um, static, where they're not really supposed to change. And any change that happens should be very light and very minimal. There are, but the weird thing is in the last like 20 years, they've started writing ones that are supposed to have a development. Well, they're pretending to, they're paying lip service to it. Yeah, well, they kind of do, but it works really weird because that was like um, uh, the Big Bang Theory with Dave, Dave Cousin Oliver mm-hmm. does that too, that they actually would add like relationships and things would progress. And you're starting to kind of wrap up some of the characters to the point that in the last, say, season or so, because they're all like married off now, mm-hmm. they don't really do nerdy things. Right. Because the idea is you outgrow that when you start having the kids and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. There's, what was it, Two Broke Girls? They literally had a counter at the end of every episode because the two of them are trying to start a business of how much money they've made towards starting their business. Okay. So it's a sitcom written from the premise of development. It was the, uh, what was the one with Doogie Hauser? That wasn't Doogie Hauser. It was uh, uh, How I Met Your Mother. Oh, yes, that one. Yeah, yeah. That the running gag was you don't know which of the, the the characters that he's interacting with ends up being the kid's mom. Right, yeah. And that's a show written with the premise of development that you're going to lead up to some big finish right from the and, – and that's – again, that's really weird for, for, for sitcoms. And it kind of sort of works because the problem is even if you're conceptualizing – an end or a progression, you're going to keep dragging this thing out as long as people watch. So you never know when that progression is going to end. That's the problem with like what they're doing with say true broke girls. I can immediately see that we'll see the money go up and down and maybe there'll be a very slow progression as they go on. And then when it's time to end the show, suddenly one of them will uh, get knocked up by a billionaire and suddenly they'll have the money to do what they want. The end. Well, I think they already started it, but you're right that there'll be some weird obligatory finish because it's, it's that weird thing. Mm -hmm. And again, I am not exactly sure how to take it in the great cosmic scheme of things. That idea that it's nice to do a a finish. It's nice to lead to a conclusion, Mm -hmm. but you kind of don't always have to. Yeah. Some things are not meant to actually have an end. Yeah, some things can just stop. And I think, again, that became around the same time we were talking when you got to like the 90s and that, and especially the last 20 years, the finale of even like a sitcom was a big deal. So they had to do some kind of story-based wrap-it-all-up kind of deal, and it usually ended up being a little odd. Mm. Like MASH did it. It was like the biggest thing on television. It literally was, because it was the most watched thing in television history, at least in terms of TV drama, I think ever up until that point, and is still still yeah. one of the big, most watched things ever, actually. Yeah, and then that kind of went away for a decade, and then you got to the '90s where, like, you get to like the late '90s, it starts coming back, and then now that's that's a thing. Well, remember that a big part of the whole idea of you don't want to end it is for syndication purposes. 
because yeah. you want to have these stories be able to run in any order and for it to just be perpetual because it's meant to run in daily strip syndication where they're showing five episodes a week at like 7.30 or so whatever. And you, yeah. just, you just keep running it and it's meant to kind of run in an endless loop. So you don't want anything resembling an ending to it. Yeah. Until you get to that final thing and then you and that's where i say it always feels kind of weird because a lot of them wrap up a lot of stuff that you didn't know was there yeah that's true or they or they wrap it up in a hurry like i remember that was the thing with cheers Mm -hmm. that the cheers finale it just sort of wraps up in a hurry yeah that's it like the like the one character i I forget her name because i'm not a sitcom fan diane the the well the the last like female love oh, interest. Oh, no, you're right. On. Diane goes and then it's... Oh, I can't remember her name. It's been too long. I can't either. But at the end, she she's like a gold digger through the whole series. At the end, she marries a plumber and she's distraught and is like, oh, I guess I married a plumber. Huh. Okay, that that's that's okay. Uh-huh. It's an end, sure. And then a lot of cheers wrapped up that way and if you watch it, the uh, overall feeling of that show, the last episode is, eh, just give up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Cheers was just about perpetualness, though. That was the whole point of Cheers. It was a place where everyone knows your name, and these characters who live in endless loop of a life, kind of like the Friends characters in a way, just mm. exist there, and they interact there, and occasionally weird, funny things will happen to them and such. But right. it's just about the denizens of this bar where nothing changes, and it's comfort. That's what it's there for. It's meant to be kind of like comfort entertainment food. Mm-hmm. And so it is weird for it to have an end in a way. They should just, I don't remember exactly what happens, but the best ending for that kind of show really is just stuff. Life continues and life goes on and more people come and other people go. And that's just the way it is. The end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Until you bring it back for the sequel 20 years later. Oh, I'm sure they've tried. (laughs) Um, Well, they're all, all the actors, I think, think are still around so they well not sure i shouldn't say yeah. all of them the old guy but the old guy died a long time ago i think yeah. the other actors are all still alive so do expect a cheers reunion at some point near in the near future <laughs> yeah but the problem is if you bring back woody harrelson after all the parts he's played recently he's the guy that comes into the bar at the shotgun <laughs> and kills everybody <laughs> although i'd watch that yeah i have to be honest that, i would watch that yep, yep there we go <laughs> woody just finally snaps yep. Woody's finally had enough. Yeah, and he was called, even the character was called Woody. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Well, he, he, yeah. Um, okay, so we should probably bring this on to an end. So I guess the question becomes, mm-hmm. so what? So, okay, so things are becoming, uh, so things have become very gamified. And mm-hmm. well, there's definitely a sense of progression or at least pseudo-progression. is something that all modern audiences expect. And if they don't get it, they get really unhappy because they get restless if there's no progression because that's something they feel should be there, whether it really should be or not. Yeah. Okay, that's how we do it now. So what? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, the problem you run into is it's a double-edged sword. Okay, how so? That Well, because it, it's, it's like we were saying, you get that progression, but the problem is that progression takes you somewhere and then you're there and it may not be somewhere you intended to go. Mm. 
So now you've got to deal with a whole new set of circumstances that your original concept may not have been intended to deal with. Right. Well, whether they want to or not, I mean, stories evolve, especially if they're playing out. Even ones that are meant to be static will evolve because the actors change, the writers change, the directors change, producers change. Change will happen for one reason Mm -hmm. or another. They can do their best to fight it, but the change always comes. And I think I just gave a movie speech, but I don't remember which one. (laughs) Anyway. um, It doesn't matter. That speech will get changed when they reboot it. Oh, okay. Problem solved. Okay, so... (laughs) Oh, wait, no, that's Thanos' speech from the last Avengers movie. Actually, I just gave Thanos' <laughs> speech. Well, there we go. All right, so, so uh, you'll run from it, fight it, you know, the one from it, hide from it, fight it, or something like that. Change always happens, something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. but the point again is that, um, I mean, this is, speaking of change, though, this is how we're doing it right now. Eventually, we'll find another formula and we'll move on to that. And yeah. if, um, if, it, if, history is any way to judge and it usually is the formula we're heading for is something that's even more like video games than what we've already had mm-hmm. because that's what the current generation as we started off talking about has literally grown up on and they're the ones who are going to be writing the next generation of stuff it's true but remember that a lot of people the video games they play are like those uh like your your equivalent of the old 8-bit like your phone games which a lot of those tend to be perpetual. So maybe the next big thing will be the old school sitcom where nothing actually happens and nobody really minds. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Sorry. Even the movie quote. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, everything's cyclic, right? So therefore, yeah. it's a given that at some point, episodic is going to come back into vogue. Yeah. At some point, people are going to want more episodic television, and they're going to get tired of these endless pseudo-changes that go on. But the thing is, the mm-hmm. entertainment industry is a little bit slow to react to these things, so it might take a little while before it happens. And to be honest, as a child of the 80s who grew up with episodic TV, I'm not really sure I want it to come back. I mean, I do appreciate more static stuff. I appreciate it for its its value. But at the same time, even when I watch old stuff, I kind of get a little restless sometimes where I'm like, okay, this is happening, but it doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. I still want that sense that the story is actually progressing towards something. Like I've, even I have gotten used to that in a way. I mean, I can still appreciate like old Trek, for example, and old 80s TV shows for what they are. But at the same time, there's a part of me that goes, well, yeah, but so what? Like, where is this mm-hmm. going? And the answer is it's not going anywhere because it's not supposed to. Yeah, I, I guess. Now, my, my take on it, though, is it, it the episodic thing doesn't bother me because I'm watching this to kill some time. Like, I'm watching it for cheap yachts. Right. So it doesn't have to, to have. And that's where I mean. I think that the uh, the modern audience, by hook or by crook, has been climatized to that, that we want at least enough to convince ourselves that what we're partaking of has some substance to it. Mm. I think ultimately I would prefer if we move to the model that ironically enough, a lot of the planet uses, not just uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Japan uses this and a lot of the planet uses, which in which case we did shorter series, but Mm -hmm. that just had an end. Like shows that, you know, they're literally designed to run one, two, three seasons and that's it. It's just, that's the end. That's the whole story. It's over. We move on to something else. I mean, yeah. 
in Asia, for example, like Korean dramas, Taiwanese dramas, Chinese dramas and that, almost all of them are designed, they're really their equivalent to soap operas is what they are, but they're really designed to run for, you know, 40, 50, 20, whatever episodes. They run an entire story during that time and then they're done. And we move and, Mm. uh, you know, the audience moves on, everyone moves on, the characters are done. They might rarely do a sequel of something super popular, but more likely the audience will simply tune into the next thing that those actors are in, but which isn't them playing mm. the same characters. It might be char- them playing characters that are similar, but you know, it's they'll, the act, uh, the audience tends to follow actors as opposed to specific series. I mean, right. I know why Americans don't do this. It's because the American model is designed to be um, a factory, an assembly line, and to be freaking cheap. You know, it's 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 a very economical, yeah. very cost-effective way of doing things. Yeah. But even in you know Argentina and Mexico and African countries and that, they even they have gotten well. Actually, correction, I shouldn't say gotten. Even they do shows that are really just last one or two seasons and then they're done. I mean, it's not because the show got canceled; it's because they're only designed to be that long. Yeah, the Brits did that for the longest time. Well, the Brits have always done a mix of it, right? Where the Brits will do weird things. Actually, the Brits will do really weird things where they'll do like seasons that are three episodes long. Um, Mm -hmm. Or they'll do seasons that are actually just two or three movies. That's been popular for the last decade or so. And then that's and then if they do more, okay, that's fine, too. I mean, that occasionally happens. But most Brit stuff does seem to be designed to whatever season they're doing is effectively the last season. And if they do more, that's fine. But they're not really planning for it. That's pretty common for them. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is also not a bad approach. Again, it depends on what kind of programming you're doing. Something that's like a murder mystery series doesn't need to have progression. In fact, it, it actually it works against it really to have progression. Mm-hmm. And people don't really want it. So why do it anyway? But yeah, something that is more dramatic and is about a character growing and improving should have real progression. And cheating the audience out of it is just annoying. Right. At least that's my take on it anyway. So that's what I'm hoping for is that we start moving towards that model where we just start doing shows that are only like meant to be a few seasons tops, maybe in just one season in done stories over move on. Yeah. We, maybe with all these streaming services, we will actually start to see more of that because it's more economical for them to do it that way. Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of the, uh, the different streaming services that, they buy X number of episodes, and I can see writing to that. Yep, exactly. Actually, one um, that's just finished this past week, actually, is the Voltron series that um, Netflix did, which I have to say mm-hmm. is really good. They they, they, did, they did a great job with it overall. I'm, there's a few quibbles here and there mm-hmm. I've got with it, but that can be another show or something, whatever. But the point is, is right. that they basically were told up front, you got 80 episodes, do what you want with that. We're paying for 80 episodes. And so they yeah. wrote to 80 episodes and it actually really shows. They did a great show mm-hmm. because of that. They didn't have to worry about being canceled or anything halfway through. Sure. They did make some changes mm-hmm. on the fly. A few things happened that they didn't expect, but that was more due to fan reaction and other things that were, you know, off camera, but they still did 80 episodes and it's a full complete arc and it all works. Oh. I wonder if that's going to become a thing, though, 80 episodes. Because isn't that uh, Rick and Morty 2? Yeah, for some odd reason, they just signed up for, like, I think it was, like, 70 episodes, but <laughs> something like that, too. 
I have a funny feeling yeah. it's some kind of weird syndication number or something like back in the old days. <laughs> Maybe, but Rick and Morty, we know why, because we know how the series ends now. It doesn't. No, it does. We know how it ends, because that's why they 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 uh, renewed it for for like I think it, yeah I think you're right I think it was seventy episodes. Okay, why? Well, because that was the uh, beginning of season three when Rick freaks out mm-hmm. talking about the uh, session one sauce. And I'm gonna get it, Morty. Even if it takes seventy episodes, I'm gonna get yeah. So we know how the series ends. Oh, okay. <laughs> he gets a session one sauce. <laughs> I always assumed it was gonna end with. Um... Morty becoming Rick or something weird like that. But okay, maybe that'll work too. <laughs> that would be disturbing. <laughs> well, I mean, there's kind of even been some, I think, I think anyway, hints to that effect. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, but again, maybe I'm just interpreting things weird. I don't know. Who knows? On that note, I think <laughs> I'd better go before I start rambling because we're already talking about Rick and Morty. So um, thank you everyone for listening. I know this episode has been a little discombobulated at times, but hopefully it made some kind of sense and we didn't repeat ourselves too endlessly. Um, mm-hmm. It is an interesting uh, way to look at things. I think probably there were some other gamification aspects that we probably could have talked about, but we kind of got on to the... Uh, progression arc and kept focusing on that when we didn't even talk about some of the character tropes that come in with gamers and such. I guess we kind of did, but anyway, who knows? Yeah. TV is well, going to become... Cause... Sorry, go. Oh, oh, oh no, I was going to say, because that's basically what the uh, the key was, that the uh, so many things have adopted that gamer style progression in that you get that weird amping up of the uh, the 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 power level and the threat level of your setting, mm, exactly. Um, but I really don't think there's much we can do about it. We just have to wait for the interest in that kind of style to pass. You know, like everything else, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a robot left to apocalypse, wonder. but that's beside the point. <laughs> Either that, or we're left to wonder where all the orcs went. Indeed, indeed. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!